0: Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. To another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, what is your favorite part about playing solitaire on the computer?
1: Ooh. Um I don't really play much solitaire on the computer. Okay, but if you did, would your favorite part be when you win and all the cards go? Yes. Yeah, yeah, probably.
0: Today we are continuing. This is gonna be part two of our adventure into the office, the American one. If you're listening to this and you're wondering why we're not really talking about Michael, it's because you haven't listened to part one yet. We talked about Michael for two hours. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Michael will be featured in part one, and part two, we're going to feature basically all the other characters. I mean, obviously, Dwight, Pam, and Jim are going to get the lion's share of their own thoughts, or our thoughts on them, but... All the other characters, all so get their little, what The impressions that they made on us along the way. And so basically, just to reiterate what we talked about in the last podcast, I think I've seen this show all the way through about four times. I watched about 13 or 14 specific episodes that I picked that I thought were really good episodes to target in and hone in on the things about these characters that we love. And like the best best episodes to generalize about them from because they are at their most mostness in these kind of things and i know you did too yeah and uh so this is a continuation of the discussion but we thought it'd be better to make it into two parts all right so we're starting with dwight dwight uh, do you know his middle name dwight k schrute i don't know his middle name dwight kurt schrute kurt i actually about a year ago i went to an office trivia And one of the trivia questions, it was like an open-ended. So it was like, who can answer the most, right? And it was, how many middle names of the characters on The Office could you get?
1: And how far did you get, Luke?
0: Well, I was with a team with people much more knowledgeable than I was on things like that when it comes to The Office. But I knew, so it's Michael Gary Scott, Dwight Kurt Schrute, Pamela Morgan Beasley. Actually, I I remember then Pamela Morgan Halpert, because she when they get married (laughs) right yes right and uh ryan bailey howard because
2: we can keep keep going (laughs) because kelly definitely screams
0: that one out (laughs) kelly's middle name is rajan because there's that huge joke in the episode (laughs) where idris alba charles minor is there and he keeps saying kelly because that's aaron's first name aaron's her middle name anyway and then jim's is something i'd never i don't think they'd ever said in the show i'd never heard it i was like whoa i never thought of that so anyway Neither here, they there.
1: Dwight, sorry, I interrupted <laughs> you. What was your question? No, I was just going to say, uh, what is your favorite uh, way to eat beets? Probably orally. <laughs> <laughs> now that is a great lead into Dwight Schrute. <laughs> Indeed.
0: As obviously, Dwight, there are some characters, and I think probably there's four of them in this show, which is part of the testament to its cultural contribution to our lives. There are some characters that transcend the show they're in and become their own cultural meme so i'm thinking of like um walter white walter white isn't just character in a show he's like the character has become greater
1: than the actor
0: or, or jay
1: gatsby Yes, we were talking about from the great Gatsby. yeah
0: yeah and i think obviously like if someone says you're being a dwight i think people can kind of understand what you mean <laughs> homer homer <laughs> simpson
1: would probably be in yeah. that as well yeah totally
0: so Obviously, I've loved Dwight. I mean, Dwight is probably, of all the main characters, he's the one that I like the least. Oh, really? He's my favorite. Well, I don't know. I just share such... I get Jim and Pam so well, and Michael makes me laugh more. Of those four, fourth place is still really good, I guess.
1: Yeah. It's more of a pantheon than a rating. <laughs> sure. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> it's like, Hermes isn't the best god, but, but he's still, a, still a pretty good god. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> here's a perfect or what i really realize is such a great dwight truth thing so it's in the hot girl episode with katie amy adams who plays katie in the hot girl episode he's talking about her to the camera like a, a side monologue or a what do they even call those like a interview i guess yeah breaking the
1: fourth wall
0: well but they're yeah like you got if you've seen the office ones you know all the scenes where they're just single uh, one person's talking to the camera in a room off on their own you know usually the conference room it looks like so he's saying about katie amazing breasts which you know is like a boring thing so she's like well not for me for my children <laughs> like they're so supple, yes, yes, and so that the first like thing to notice about Dwight is like he is always a hundred percent in on the literalness
1: of life, yes <laughs> I mean like not no, don't carry meat in your pocket <laughs> yeah like, no dwight is uh I think the reason that I like Dwight is not because I want to emulate him or because you know I admire him, but I think he m- most sincerely loves the things he loves without an, an apology for like, sure like he he doesn't care that it's not cool that he or that he's not cool like he loves what he loves mm-hmm. he loves his farm he yeah. loves his cousin i guess the only aspect of his life that seems to be a little bit incongruent is his love of angela yeah i mean that his relationship with angela definitely drives the majority
0: of the drama of his yes. character yes. in yes. His, the show his character arc, and yeah. i love it is pretty awesome, I think, that the end of the show is his wedding, Tangela. I mean, yeah. that, that is a really beautiful way to finish the show, because there's been so many beautiful weddings throughout the run of the show, and I, I do love that his is the end. I mean, because it, it's, it's a nice close on his progression, and you do have to appreciate... And, and honestly,
1: he has, like, the best character arc, arguably, <laughs> like... He seems to learn the most lessons. Besides Jim and Pam, who he he learns they have a great relationship. He seem
0: he does seem to learn as the show winds down. Yeah, like we see development in Dwight. The last season, especially. Jim doesn't get better.
1: Jim's just great all along, pretty
0: yeah, much. Yeah, I mean Jim has his foibles that come out in hilarious ways. That's what I mean. Show, like he too. doesn't get better. Well,
1: right? and he he has some tough
0: moments in the last season. Yeah. and and dwight has some good growth moments in the last season but i think what when when i'm thinking about dwight well okay uh, we mentioned this in part 1 one of the things that is kind of fucky about this show is that it shows the maintaining of relationships of all of these people with each other, but no one ever really has to live with any consequences of anything that they do. Yeah, like some of them are really rotten (laughs) to one another. Other than Michael, Dwight does the
1: most stuff that
0: should give consequences to his life. When
1: he buys the building and (laughs) then, you know, is like forcing everyone to use one ply toilet paper. Yeah, Yeah. Uh,
0: but just the way he talks to clients... Like, yeah. he's this incredible salesman, but he has no, like, bedside manner or sales, No tact at all. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a funny, there's that one funny episode where he demonstrates that he's never, he doesn't take any vacation days. He doesn't. So, like, yeah, he's, he's Mr. Literal. And I think it's a massive source of humor. His inability to, in any sense, believably pick up on an inside joke until it's too late is how Jim gets him all the time. Well, and that's
1: like the relationship (laughs) between Jim and Dwight is beautiful because it's hilarious. Because, you know, I mean, I think at first you kind of think that Jim doesn't really like Dwight, but like by the end you're like, wow, he really loves him in a unique way. Well, I and that's, again, in the first couple seasons
0: mirrored by how the American office is kind of following in the footsteps of the British one. So the the Dwight character in the British office, his name is Gareth, and he's also very, he's a weirdo and he's unlikable and he's hard to, and I and I think that early Dwight, like all the characters in the show, early Dwight is much less likable than later Dwight, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's he's another great example of the growth of the show, but maybe like, just to meditate a bit on. This idea of him being too literal. So his literalness it makes for a lot of humor because his lack of tact is funny because he's so confident and usually right, and yet seems oblivious to anybody's feelings. And so, like in one sense, that gets a lot done, right? Like he's obviously well, he's like probably
1: the yeah. reason that office continues to function. <laughs> totally, like, that's actually yeah. something my mom
0: always said. She's like. How do they get any work done in this? And show? It's Dwight basically <laughs> carrying the thing on his back. And actually, that joke is mirrored so well in the Happy Hour episode when Julie, Pam's friend, who is <laughs> Michael, is unknowingly on a date with. And then date Mike comes out. Before that, she says, "Man, that's your boss." Or, or I think she's doing it aside the, the cameras. Like when Pam said it was her boss, I was a little worried. But I've never met a boss like that. If I had a boss like that, <laughs> we would never get any work done. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a I I think that line is a great tip of the hat to the audience. Yes, yes, 100%. <laughs> who are also being like how oh, did they get any work done? So yeah, Dwight has this ability to, you know, he's very task oriented. He's he's super competent, but he's kind of he's got a he, there's a, a soft underbelly exposed to someone like Jim who is very playful about it, but how. I guess he demonstrates the hidden things not available to someone too literal-minded. The types of jokes, the types of avenues of ways of thinking. The social
1: nuances that some of us take for granted, but that another person just can't get a handle. Well,
0: I mean, you see it a lot in the show of his kind of incomprehensibility about what's going on when other people are just kind of being friendly with each other. Or, like, there's a conversation between two people in the office or a couple or a group that... It's not task focused. It's just for fun. <laughs> and, yeah.
1: And he's like, why are we doing this? And
0: his and his boorishness comes out there where he just can't really comprehend it. And like, it's obviously because it's a show, it's so funny. Like the the contrast between his obliviousness and everyone else's everyone else on the inside joke against himness is great. Like it's so funny, but I'm just thinking like for someone like Dwight, because I think Dwight is actually the Dwight type. He's way more believable as a as a real human type than Michael is. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I, I wouldn't
1: say I know people that encapsulate all of the, that Dwight is, but like, there's a lot of people out there who are very Dwight like. Yeah, well, the the I'm I'm thinking specifically of the literal minded. Th- that's what I mean. Yeah, who who just can't seem to get a handle on sarcasm yeah, well, or and like or, irony, or, and in, or, and when they do get it
0: they think it's below them. Yeah, it's A little bit. It's stupid. Why would you waste time doing that? And I just think that the hidden cost for Dwight is the joy that's unavailable to him because of his too rigid
1: mind. Well, even the laughter, right? Like, the jokes that Jim are playing on him because he's so literal-minded are funny, especially to Pam, too. Like, this is kind of (laughs) how they bond, is basically Jim playing these pranks on Dwight. And I think... That laughter and that joy that they, that they get to experience is something that is unavailable to Dwight, and I wonder, do you think that it's something that that is kind of natural to people people like Dwight to kind of look down at because they don't understand it, or do you do you think these are things that are learned, socialized, or do we always have them? Could someone like Dwight theoretically develop into someone who understands and thinks these things are funny? yeah, I'd say so.
0: And I think we see that trajectory a bit for him as the show goes on. It's more of an office thing than a Dwight thing, but I think later on when... Like, I'm thinking specifically of the episode where Dwight gets Jim back by peppering him with snowballs. Yes, yes. And then builds all of those snowmen at the end and Jim is scared because he doesn't know which one it is. Like, G- like, Dwight's borrowing a page out of the Jim playbook there. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. And that role reversal is... So awesome. I mean, it reminds me of a, when Hobbes does role reversals where because Hobbes engages in so many of Calvin's crazy shenanigans, it's funny when he says, oh, I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so I think that Dwight actually serves as a wonderful, maybe not a red flag, but maybe like a, a dark pink flag <laughs> or something. Right. Like not a, not a serious warning, but it's like the thing is that I think the real, I guess, sadness of – someone like dwight would be the thing the, the joys of life not available to him if he isn't able to engage in the frivolity a little bit and and dwight does and i do think it's possible but i do i just i i guess i'm saddened by the horizons not able to be
1: not available
0: not to available them. to dwight with again like a rigid mind like a mind that only can read a word one way or can only see a black and a white a yes or a no and even though dwight is someone who would be incredibly efficient i don't think we want the dwight's
1: running things well no but <laughs> i mean and that's kind of seen throughout the show yeah. right he, he never really he becomes wants manager. the power he wants <laughs> oh, the yeah. hierarchy well, right yeah because i mean he res- the thing is someone like dwight respects the hierarchy so much right like yeah immediately if you're the boss then you're the boss yeah the and only
0: the only person throughout the run of the show that dwight ever has any compunction to help at all is michael well and, and specifically because michael is and the boss. only and
1: the only boss that he ever seems to undermine ever is andy a little bit right there's yeah well and jim you, well and jim. <laughs> the, the yeah. seems well jim's like the co-manager for a little bit well when the, they're both six, manager right well michael no, and jim are yes
0: i think it's in season six there's like a six or seven episodes where they're co-managers together and yes yes (laughs) Dwight fucking hates that (laughs) that's intolerable because it should be Dwight but I mean he's also got a line in the office Olympics where he says bring the stocks back there'd be less troublemakers (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah like the thing with Dwight is like you get enough from him that he's you feel like he's self-aware enough to to like okay that could be a joke (laughs) like that that could be a joke but then you got to wonder if he had the power like Would he bring the stock like back, talk back? Yeah, I think. Well, maybe because Dwight's no fool. Like he can still understand motivation and incentive. Even if he's literal, he's like, "Well, it's a literal incentive. Maybe if we put the stocks in the office and people know I'll use it, yeah, then 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 they'll work harder." (laughs) We don't actually have to put them in the stocks. Well, there are a few scenes
1: where he is kind of in charge where people just leave. Remember that one where he's he's made you know manager or he's in charge for the afternoon and everyone just walks out as soon as Michael does. Like that's the other thing about interacting with the world in the way that Dwight does is. If all you're relying on for your power is position, as soon as people don't respect you, then you have nothing right? Your position doesn't matter to them.
0: Oh uh, totally. I mean, and I think I've said it before on the podcast. It, it strikes me as like if you if you need a title to derive your authority, you
1: deserve neither. And that's the funny thing and he wants a title. Well, that's all so like bad like
0: Dwight, to someone like Dwight, the title is authority. Yeah. Like if you have
1: the title, that's what you that's all there is. <laughs> basically. <laughs> but, but it's it's interesting because there is an element of title like respecting a title regardless of the person who holds it and an understanding the need for hierarchy and the need in an organization and the need for structure that I think is important. So so in that sense I understand why I would say because For example, making decisions by committee all the time as opposed to having someone on top that makes a decision. Committees take forever, and they often don't agree, and like it's not really a good way of getting things done quickly. So there are uses for um, respecting a position just for a position just so that you can get things done. Yeah, I mean... And I think that goes back to what you were saying about him being so literal and efficiency-minded... It doesn't make sense. Like, he kind of hates the party planning committees because they can never seem to be able to get anything done.
0: Yeah. I mean, Dwight is super efficient and competent, but it still seems like what tips the balances for his motivation is he does want to be in charge, and he does want to tell other people what to do. Like, for him to be manager... He wants to be manager not so much because he can increase the efficiency of the office even
1: more. No, it's but he does because w- he wants to be able to tell Jim what to do. Well, yeah, and he wants the title, <laughs> like he wants the prestige. Yeah, w- which I think is you know is is kind of one of the big jokes of the office. Is it's like everyone seems to be like Jim seems to be one of the only people. Well, no, I guess a lot of the people in the office are like this but they realize like what they're doing with their days <laughs> and they like, it's kind of yeah. like, oh. <laughs> well, yeah, Jim has
0: some reflections on that for sure. But like, well, oh, I still work here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm this age. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's hard to pick it out exactly, except that titles are useful to designate, I guess, hierarchies and job descriptions. But I guess I would put it to you this way. For a, a hierarchy to be as efficient as it ever could be, like we're talking peak efficiency. My argument would be it has to be entirely a ground up competency hierarchy.
1: Like so the most competent persons at the top? Yeah, like
0: a like a one hundred percent meritocracy kind of thing in a company or an agency. And you can skip that step by just going for titles.
1: <laughs> yeah. But there's also the inefficiency of human knowledge and our inability to to have all the data, right? So so you make snap decisions based on the information that you have, which is actually why nepotism is a big thing. And this is that they did a lot of studies on this. Most people are not hired by sending in their resume to a company. Most people are hired because they know someone there or they have a friend. And it's not necessarily because that's how things work. It's because if I'm recommending someone or I'm bringing someone onto my team, I kind of want to know something about them because it's it's really weird just to just bring in a stranger and see what happens. Actually, we see this at times in the office when someone new arrives. There's kind of, everyone's like, like remember when Holly arrives yeah. in the office? Everyone's just kind of, and she doesn't feel like very loved or like she <laughs> kind of feels ostracized. And now part of that is her relationship with Michael, which happens fairly quickly. But everyone kind of treats her like and shit. Like, well, and by
0: this point, Everyone has one of the great jokes of the office is that by the time Holly does arrive, everyone else in the office has kind of internalized the same antipathy for Toby that Michael has explicitly. (laughs) And so like that joke is brewing really well to also feel that same negative emotion towards the new HR person. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is which is I like I think the best passive joke in the office is how everyone comes to hate Toby. (laughs) Like no one, no one is quite as, but like everyone, or maybe not hate Toby. Everyone's annoyed with him. Yeah. (laughs) They're just like, like, shut up Toby. Yeah. It's like Toby.
1: But what I, I guess I, what I'm getting at with that is when we're looking at uh, environments where people get brought in and things like that, while merit is, is essential. It is very difficult to actually measure merit. I suppose I think you would well depends
0: how how well thought out the metrics of your values and your goals are for your company. I mean one of the cool things about Michael <laughs> the the small Michael seems to when he's doing his best leadership he does seem to know how to use his people best. Who to send where for what. Yes. You know. Yes. And I think that, that that's the actual hidden competency of Michael as the manager. There's something kind of weirdly
1: long-term inspiring about Michael. Well, that goes back to what we were talking about last time, where he knows he has intimate knowledge of everyone that works for him down to their cat's name, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, well, so here's... Dwight becomes manager, let's say, okay?
0: We play that game. I think that there's a certain level of efficiency, like maybe there'd be an overhead efficiency that would come right away, like things would go faster. But I just, like, Dwight seems incapable of acting in a manner that's going to get his employees to work as hard when he's not there as when he is. And then I think he sets unrealistic expectations. Because of his obsession with hierarchies and titles, he wouldn't view all of the employees sandbagging him as something that he needs to learn from. He would view it as an opportunity to discipline them, to get them into a better shape. And again, there might be short-term, but then I think if Dwight was manager, I think you'd start to see more turnover in the office, and then I think you'd have to see costs going up for interviews, and then maybe Dwight has to start hiring only people he knows already, like you mentioned, but then... Well, he does. Remember, he does that. (laughs) Yeah, but then... (laughs) then you're playing a tricky game with client relations based on how all the people Dw- Dwight trusts are not probably going to be great with other people. And so <laughs> they're not, they're going to lose not. sales. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that why I actually would say, even though it seems absurd to say, why I think Michael's way more competent as a leader than Dwight is, at least for most of the run, is that Michael seems a little bit aware of all of these hidden costs that would accrue if he was as literal as Dwight was in the pursuit of the bottom line.
1: And there are moments where he shows those, like you said, of flashes of brilliance where we see that actually there's some kind of a method to his madness on, oh, we need everyone to be happy. Like, remember where you said they need this this murder mystery because...
0: Yeah, so here's a good way to put it. I think Dwight has two or three... Tools that work incredibly well for what they're designed for. Michael would have about a hundred tools that work good enough, <laughs> right? But He's that just jack of all trade, yeah. Master that's of why kind of Michael thing. couldn't get out of more scrapes than Dwight could, I think. Yeah, okay. And and so, but I'm saying that why that's a downfall for Dwight is because he doesn't actually have a mechanism. It appears he doesn't have a mechanism internally to problem solve and come to those realizations like he would interpret like a slowdown in production as the fault of someone else, because he's still working as hard as he always has. In fact, he'd be working harder. Right. So he couldn't, he wouldn't be able to comprehend the gap between him working even harder and their output being smaller because he doesn't see those hidden costs because he doesn't have as lateral a mind as someone like Michael does. To see, oh, if I am a hard ass today, oh, this person, they had a hard day. Like maybe their kid is sick or something and they're having a hard day. So I'm not going to yell at them for being five minutes late, which means that three hours from now, they're not going to be in a bad, they're not going to have, an, they're not going to be angry at me. So they are actually going to do a due diligence on a particular Shipment, which means that we save thousands of dollars down the line because that was actually a faulty shipment. So it was a good thing that due diligence was done on quality assurance, right? Like right. all of those things that are hard to measure. Granted, they're very, very hard to measure. But I think a wise person takes these morale. And, yeah,
1: really, it's it's the morale of yeah. your employees, and
0: and so. But again, because of his obsession with title, I don't think Dwight could see. Yeah, that. I can agree with that. Okay. And so I'm not I'm not saying hey, Michael shouldn't have title of manager. I'm saying. I think Michael deserves the title.
1: Oh, yeah. I'm saying deserve your title as opposed to hang your hat on it. And I agree with that. I I think what I was trying to to highlight is that title and hierarchy have a very important, even if the most confident people aren't on top, they do have a very important role to play in an organization's efficiency, I think. Now, you can get bloated titles, you can get you know blow to bureaucracy and that's a whole nother problem but not in this particular case but in general i think there's a reason that certain organizations are structured the way they are like a private may be way better than a general but if, if all the privates who are smarter than the general are making the decisions you're gonna have a terrible army
0: yeah i would just say that i think if the private is smarter than the general or more competent then the private should just be the general
1: yeah but I mean, you can't. I mean, that that's you kind of. I think that's utopian thinking, right? Because that's going to happen. But you're not. You're just not going to have time, like institutions and structures and organizations move too slowly to to promote merit that quickly. I think. Well, I guess they could
0: need to figure out ways to improve. <laughs>
1: Yeah, <laughs> like
0: no. I mean that j- that that's true. I just don't see that as an intractable. But like problem. let's
1: let's take uh, let's take The Office for example. Yeah. Like Jim should probably be the manager.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that I don't know. I don't know. We'll, I we'll talk about Jim more okay. in a bit because yeah, yeah. I do. Well, yeah. Let's get back to Dwight because I, I, I do. Well, like the thing is, when I was talking about Michael just a few minutes ago, I'm realizing that the things Michael can do, I'm not even sure. Jim can totally do either because I don't know if Jim has the same.
1: Jim wouldn't have the same drive for that job. Well, no, I mean that's kind of the the whole Jim's. But well, we'll go we'll go to Jim yeah. later. But okay, so more on Dwight.
0: Well, I think one of the funniest the the funny relationship between Michael and Dwight is that Michael both relies on Dwight and is kind of disdainful with how much Dwight kisses his ass. Oh yeah, oh, <laughs> like, I think it's hilarious. It's so hilarious. Yeah. And so, like, I'm reminded of this. In the Benjamin Franklin episode, I think Michael's making a video for his future son. And one of the things he wants to show him is how to take a bra off (laughs) with one hand. And so he asked Pam to do it, I think, and Pam says no. So Dwight's wearing the bra turned around and Michael, of course, Michael can't take it off. And Dwight is a total ass kisser to Michael. To anyone in authority. Yeah,
1: and Michael doesn't like it. But he's willing to use it. And that that yeah, that's as, I mean, we're I guess we're gonna end up talking about Michael more in this as well. But I mean that kind of Michael's one of his flaws, right? Is that he'll he'll use anyone's like like you said, go get me breakfast. Mm-hmm. But he'll he'll use his authority too. I don't think he would have, he abuses it nearly as much as Dwight would. And I think Dwight allow or Dwight does all those things for Michael because that's what he would want someone to do if he was the manager.
0: Yeah. But I think that like brown nosing that Dwight does is more examples of why Dwight will do anything to be in charge. Yeah. Like he doesn't have a lot of dignity. I mean, he does say what he really thinks to Michael, but he often will also say things that he thinks Michael wants to hear, which Michael not being a particularly wise person sometimes just takes his flattery and it's wonderful for him. And, Yet everyone, and, and I don't know, like I've been to places with groups where we're like, there's a group with a shared goal and someone says something that's flattering to the leaders and it feels insincere or it's like, that's not how you talk when they're not around or what are you trying to, like, who are you fooling kind of thing. And I, and it it's not something that garners respect from the other people around you. And if Dwight knows that and he doesn't care, then he's been an asshole but if he doesn't know it he's again not fit to be their leader <laughs> yeah you know yeah and so i don't know what's your take on brown nosing oh. or kissing ass just just to move up the i think rungs?
1: i think the issue with flattery is that it's lying and i think brown nosing is a form of lying too because, as you pointed out, when you're brown-nosing, you're not doing it because you genuinely respect and admire the person you're doing it to. You're doing it for yourself. And so you're you're uh, obfuscating your motives by seemingly trying to be super helpful. But in reality, it, it's, I compare it, the best comparison that I can think of, is men who do nice things for women to get in their pants. Right? <laughs> like... The motive is not because you care Dwight about the person. Dwight might do that yeah, for yeah, Michael. I, I, like I there's no reason to think he wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's the same principle, right? It's you're lying to the world and to your not not to yourself because you probably know why you're doing it, but to others and I just think in general lying puts you in a discontinence with reality. And and when that happens, you know, you're no longer when you're lying about reality and you're not in tune with reality, I think it, it, it causes serious cognitive problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really corrupting cognitive problems. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you have to understand reality, but I think you, as, as well as you understand it, you have to align yourself with it. Mm-hmm. And that's what really what the truth is.
0: Yeah. I think to one of the, probably one of the great Dwight contributions to the, sh- to the office is that I think he actually has the best single commentary lines. Like, I think when they do the one-on-ones with him, his lines are... Like, everybody has delivers funny lines. But the way the randomness of Dwight's interjections, and just... He'll talk about something we all know, but from a direction that you just would never have predicted. And yet, you kind of think about it as like, well, yeah, I guess that interpretation is also true of the situation. And it's... um. Pam's pregnant before their wedding. And he says, a three-ounce fetus is calling the shots. So badass. <laughs> and, like, you laugh a bit. It was like, yeah, actually, if someone's pregnant with a child they intend on having, their entire life revolves around this little <laughs> ball <laughs> like, of... Like, three ounces yeah. or something. You know? <laughs> but the thing is, when Dwight says things like that, he says it with such reverence and veneration because it's like, man, something so small with
1: so much power. Like, Dwight does want power. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's the funny, interesting thing about Dwight, too, is, like, he wants to be a manly man so badly. He hunting and, you know, and, and fighting. And, you know, and But, like, he's just not. <laughs> and I think that has to do with his obsession with power, too. He wants physical power, and he wants, you know... If he's ever in a fight, he wants to be the guy who wins it. And yet, in that area of his life, in the area of a t- obtaining power, whether it be physically or otherwise, he seems completely incompetent. <laughs> yeah. Although, I mean, he does seem like he's a pretty diligent farmer. Yeah, but I don't think that's to gain power. No,
0: no, no. I think that's
1: just genuinely something he enjoys. Yeah. Well, like, so he's he's good with the land. Like, he's not. To- I don't think he's an incompetent person. I mm. think he's a, that he has uh, misordered goals based on his competencies. <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah.
0: And he feels the sting of injustice so strongly when it doesn't go his way. And I think he feels that sting of injustice when things don't go his way precisely because he's too literal to understand all of the things that are he does that work against him when he's not around. Yeah. Yep. You know. He doesn't particularly seem interested or even aware
1: of his reputation with others. Other or, than to, unless c- it's, or to care.
0: Unless it's Michael.
1: Yes. Well, he only cares what Michael thinks he, about I him. think he's like fully ing- ingrained in the idea of the hierarchy because power... Okay, here's here's the thought. Because his entire focus is on power and obtaining power, he views the world through the lens of power being the most important thing. Therefore, he doesn't care what the other... Because he knows he's the hardest worker in the office. And and this has to do with like how people begin to build perhaps fantasies in their mind of who they are. Because they, they take little pieces of reality. Dwight takes, I'm the hardest worker in the office. Michael's the boss. This is the way the world is. I have to do stuff for Michael. But everyone else, I don't have to pay attention because I already know I've beat them. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Which then goes back to what you just said about it, him feeling the injustices. He knows he works harder. So if anything... Ha- If anyone gets promoted, he knows Jim's lazy. (laughs) He knows it the best. Yeah, (laughs) but but see, but again, like just to to
0: tie it back to what we just talked about a little bit before, because he's so literally focused on the hierarchy, he doesn't quite know the ways that he can be brought down by the group, not just well, yeah, the the system of the hierarchy.
1: Exactly. I think he's like he's taken one. Truth that he believes in, and and I and I uh, I would attest that the hierarchies are important, as I did earlier. But he's taken that one thing and blown it out of proportion, so it's everything, Mm -hmm. and he gets blindsided. Like that's
0: a perfect way to put it. Because of the things he's not paying attention to, he gets blindsided when they reveal that uh, actually your reputation and the way you treat people who aren't your boss. Will actually come. What goes around, is all around. To quote Ricky from Trailer Park Boys, "What goes around comes around." Right? Yeah, and even if it's not Michael, uh, Michael cares about other. Like, there's, there's just the social dynamics are not important to him, and so he feels that injustice when something social gets in the way of his progression. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> and, social and, stuff doesn't and, matter to him. And and I think it probably hurts him even more because he can't understand it
1: yeah, because so it's an, because it's, he's kind of like got tunnel vision.
0: It's not just an injustice. It's an incomprehensible injustice, which is the worst kind and and he's and that and that kind
1: of thing is both
0: infuriating and leaves you with a little bit of a sense of anomie. you can't even make sense of your injustice, which is a kind of psychological torture, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and that's why I actually think Dwight is very much a kind of warning. Of
1: well, yeah, being too I think literal, exact, and and I guess being too literal. Let's say in narrowing your focus to a to a set number of truths that you just think that's it.
0: Mm-hmm. But I do love his asides. I think they're so funny, and I even think that thing he talked about the fetus is a great little subtle nod to truth. Like I think that one of the upsides of Dwight is that because he has a a devil may care, but it's not quite. Like, I think devil may care connotes a bit of charm or charisma. Like it's it's more just like a I don't give a shit. Yeah. One of the upsides of that is that Dwight does get to say things that are true, that maybe other people wouldn't say, but yet it's still better for the world that that f- truth is out there. You know, and I like it is. Yeah, like the baby's calling the shots. Yeah. <laughs> and, there are some nice things he does, though, as time goes along. Like the one, the Crime Aid episode, he does bid on Phyllis's hug because he's been a bit of an asshole to her all day. And he does have that feeling. So, like, this is why, again, this is, I think, even though I love this show and it's full of amazing warmth, this is the unbelievable factor of this show for me. When Dwight and Michael especially can vacillate so massively between huge human types where Dwight is so unconcerned with other people and then will bed on a... hut. Like, why in this case does his conscience kick in and not in every other case where it doesn't, you know? Or why does Michael seem super self-aware in this instance and then unbelievably oblivious in all the others? I think that that obviously is a license that a show gets, especially as a comedy. If we saw that kind of switch between characters in a drama, a long-form drama, we would... I would have a mild umbrage with that i was like this is so different from how we've seen him in so many other contexts like what changed yeah and the office so like i don't even know if this is a criticism of the office my big observation on michael and dwight and then most of the characters they don't have to live with the consequences of their actions in really any meaningful way and they oscillate too much yeah and they oscillate a little bit too much to be
1: believable
0: that's a minor quip because it's a comedy
1: But I do think it's, it is nice to see that he's capable of that, I guess. Well, I think that those things endear him to us, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the things that when he does them, we're like, oh, you know, it's, we've talked about this before in the Aladdin episode where he does the kind thing and that immediately we're like, oh, he's doing this in secret. You know, he must actually be a good person. And we're immediately feeling that way, even though it's not necessarily in secret with Dwight we see those things and it's kind of like a wink wink nod nod actually mm-hmm. he's he's a good guy he just is weird
0: yeah but the weird thing with dwight is that he just often goes right back to the way he was before yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's True. not it's like it's whatever the story needs i guess but that's fine what what is so nice about dwight when he finishes is that he he finds kind of like happiness and peace when he lets a lot of that stuff go you know Like, I don't remember quite as well, but I know in season nine, when he's, like, out on his farm more, and he's getting ready to marry Angela, he just seems more calm and more at peace with the way. And so, like, I like, I love, actually, that that's what the show leaves us with, is Dwight's kind of maturity in coming to terms with the fact that he doesn't need to be type A alpha about everything to be happy.
1: Yeah, and I think Angela actually helps him with that a lot, because... Their relationship seems to mellow him, and and mellow her, because they're both kind of radical crazies for, <laughs> for a while. But mm-hmm. well, and I mean part of that too is he exports his anger over not getting
0: manager to karate and meditation, and I think that that's actually super insightful. Is that I in the times in life where I have felt distanced from something i used to care about or a little not depressed exactly but not not have the same energy for something that i used to have and especially if it's something kind of work related how crucial these other aspects of your life become to really give purpose and meaning to it so for me, it's things like making sure that I, like some of my lowest moments I have been when I've written songs, you know, or like gotten into music or made sure I'm signing up for Ultimate Frisbee again or something like that. Or dare I say, even this podcast, it's something good to be involved in. And I mm-hmm. think that there's some deep wisdom there with Dwight kind of having his Sisyphian getting the upper hand on the chaos of the gods in control of him by going and doing things that he cares about that are nothing to do with his
1: job. Well, I think uh, I think it's Marcus Aurelius that says, you know, the greatest conqueror is he who conquers himself. And I used to think that was a stupid saying, and I I would mock it with other people or two other people. But the older I get, the more I re- <laughs> shout out to Tom Thomas Hunt for the older I get comment. Because <laughs> anyway, he'll get the joke. You know, what the, um, <laughs>
0: that reminds me of the Mitch Hedberg joke where it's like. I don't get when people say this is a picture from me when I was younger.
1: Yeah, <laughs> every picture of you is when you were younger. <laughs> exactly. It's a. Uh, it's an idiot. Or, uh, yeah. It's a uh, one of those phrases you just say. But the point is, I think I've come to realize through um, through this podcast, through friendship with uh, people like my friend Matt Ends, and Tom, and others, that, that is true. That conquering yourself is the greatest battle, and I mean that's kind of what. I think Dwight begins to do with karate and the other things that he's doing. And I think people can do with physical activity, with meditation, with serious contemplation of not just the world and the problems of the world, but with your internal world and and your struggles. And one of my favorite uh, quotes is when the Arthenian knights were going on the quest for the grail, they were all supposed to go to where they the forest looked the darkest to them. And I think in the journey of maybe finding yourself conquering yourself, go to those dark places, right? find and in the case of Dwight, the dark place seems to be that he, he never has peace because he's always striving uh, and always pushing himself to become this, like you said, alpha male on top boss. And that was his darkness, and he kind of overcomes it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And
0: it's beautiful for Dwight, and it's useful for the just kind of life necessity of hobbies and things that you are in control of, or things that you, like karate, I mean, obviously you what's the verb, karate (laughs) with other people. You could do martial arts. I don't know. But it's still like a self-discipline. And so is meditation, you know, and I think that there's something so pacifyingly intelligent in that like little way of dealing with internal difficulties of things that are out of your control. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's move on to Pam. Now, Pam, I, would say pam's not the funniest character and she might not even be the most important character of the show but i think she's my favorite there's something so wholesomely wonderful about the way pam is and i mean if we think about it she is a prime motivator for for sure for jim and not quite as much but still a lot for michael and so arguably jim and michael are the two most important characters in the show and their prime motivator is Pam, and so a lot of their interactions are because of her, and her kind of way of dealing with all of that is, to me, she is emblematic of why I think The Office is so endearing. Like, I don't think we get the endearing parts of Jim without Pam, and no one else really in the show is super beautiful in their soul <laughs> yeah like there's but a, she is like she seems
1: wholesomeness yeah to, and not like in that bad word of like oh we need to be wh- use wholesome words or anything Well, there's just like a a goodness to pam uh like a, a fundamental yeah she's she's the kind of woman you want to marry <laughs> <I> <laughs> yeah yeah, like, yeah well i mean fun- that- and, and not just because there's a romance there but because like she seems to actually genuinely have a, a good heart mm-hmm and, and Jim sees this, obviously. Okay,
0: how do I... It's hard to say this like 100% true. All the characters in the office at some point show like a beautiful side of them. A side that's fun and endearing and thoughtful. And like maybe even a struggle that they're going through that gives you a lot of sympathy. But I think Pam is the only character in the show that always does that that never really slides too much into the absurdity and deep, dark selfishness that a lot of the other characters show. It's at least the total inverse, where if someone like Kelly is 90% ditzy and 10% thoughtful, and someone like Stanley is... 90% 90% uninterested in whatever's going on with anybody else in the room and 10% thoughtful. And, you know, Phyllis, 90% kind of clueless and 10% thoughtful and Oscar, 90% smug and 10% thoughtful. Like, I think that there's a kind of a mild formula going on with a lot of these characters. But with Pam, it feels like she's 99% authentic in the show and maybe 1%, like a little bit off her rocker sometimes. yeah. And Jim, Jim is an interesting character, or an interesting mix of that, too, because I think that he is a little bit, he's way more often insincere than Pam is. Jim will troll Dwight and Michael, and Pam will just tell them that she thinks they're stupid.
1: Yeah. Like, she's she's giving them the respect <laughs> of being honest with them. And with how much she's dyslexic. That's a that's dyslexic. bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Or like... Taking Michael's calls to make sure that he doesn't talk to people at the wrong time, or she she's also protecting them from their worst selves. Mm-hmm. Like she's genuinely motherly, I yeah. guess you could say to all of the men in her life. Actually, yeah.
0: And I think probably one of the things Jim sees in her is that she actually
1: treats people better than he does. I, I think Jim even says this. I can't. I can't remember where, but like you're you're a better person than me. Like. Mm-hmm like she's she is a good person.
0: Yeah. I mean that even feels like it undersells it because she's I know, I hate saying I like I'm like, it's, to like think it's like every attribute that she has is
1: respectable. Like there's an element of in the purest way of saying this, saintliness to her. Mhm. But right along with all of that,
0: I think why I like her so much is that she is so unbelievably game to do the things jim suggests and then uh, one of the great things is she starts to suggest the crazy things to do yeah she loves pranks and and, like and she enjoys life yeah and it's so it's like a, it's like a kind of a weirdly awesome marriage in a person of authenticity wholesomeness but also with a great sense of humor and a willingness to try new things and to not
1: be Deterred by an uncertain situation, yes, mostly one of the things that I find troubling about both her and Jim is their contentment with scenario situations they don't seem to actually in- be enjoying like oh. they're not pursuing their dreams. I mean, eventually, I guess both of them sort of do, mm-hmm. but it takes a long time and there's a there's a lot of stagnation in both of their lives. And so, yes, she'll she's game to do, like, fun little things and, like, little risky things. But, like, she even talks about taking a big new step and, like, approaching an actual change in, like, her environment and in her life. And, like, both her and Jim really shy away from that. I mean, more her. Jim kind of moves around a little bit. But she seems to be very comfortable and stuck in her ways
0: yeah well i i I think that's true i think what's great about that though is that that actually also reflects the uncertainty of living yeah no you're right like that's it's the more the small things or the everyday things that she's so up for i think that those major things are why jim and pam are so relatable is that they do struggle with those major things which is is unbelievably normal
1: (laughs) oh for sure yeah Yeah, like
0: not just work but like Pam is in a comfortable relationship with, with Roy. Roy. Yeah. And Jim, who she clearly has feelings for. I mean, I made this note. One of the very first notes I made is in the Hot Girl episode where Katie's there. She's caught, again, a, ca- a great candid camera moment of The Office. She's caught putting on lipstick. And, uh, you know, so the show catches people in their private moments and she is someone who just wants to turn ahead head too. So, like, there's a more attractive woman (laughs) in the room Mm -hmm. let's say and she puts on makeup so that you know presumably she could be noticed too uh by whom exactly like (laughs) who could it be i mean one of the reasons why that casino episode the casino night episode is so heart-wrenching is because we know deep down it's it's probably what she wants she probably does want jim but she's obligated in some way to Roy and isn't she engaged Roy well yeah she's point, en- yeah. she's engaged to Roy but it again it's kind of like that title is comfortable and it's functional and it's working and I think one of the great growths of Pam is her ability to move beyond that
1: yes in the show yes, I'm not I don't want to like darken her name or anything but all I'm saying is that's something that always bothered me and I think for for me anyway, a thing that I very much admire in a person is a willingness to kind of put it all on black and see what happens. I understand that's not what everyone wants from life, but she never does that.
0: I mean, I guess she does a bit when she, I can't remember exactly, but she goes to art. She goes to school art school, and, yeah,
1: and Jim's still stuck at the office and she's in a different <laughs> city. They do that a lot. They have like a significant Well, We'll go into that later. She does eventually, and I think that's the good, yeah, the good thing. It's good growth. I, yeah, I, I just, I think that the good writing of The
0: Office is to show, especially Pam and Jim's kind of like mild, weak-mindedness
1: to know what to do with their situations. There's a because word, I, there's a word for it—just this sense that something's not right. Mm-hmm. Um, like they, they, they kind of they're stuck in this. Every day, this isn't what I want. A drudgery. Yeah. But
0: that's why I think... A new... Ennui?
1: Ennui! (laughs) Thank you. Ennui.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I think that they... The joy that they get from each other pulls them out of that. Well, and that's the beauty of their relationship, uh, which we'll get to later. So here's another thing that I just love about a person like Pam. In the Office Olympics episode, she notices when Jim gets really excited about something and how he comes to life and encourages the Olympics, and she loves this about him. So she is paying attention to something about Jim that he wouldn't be able to really articulate about himself because he's just kind of flowing through his life, and yet Jim probably, without it being pointed out to him, and it's not just Jim, I think this is a hard human thing, Like it's hard to point out the things about yourself that are changing based on little tiny things happening that change your attitude because it's it's just you don't get any gaps you just just you moving through the consciousness and stream of time (laughs) you know yes kind of like how but it's way easier to see someone who's grown if you haven't especially a kid if you haven't seen them in a month than if you see them every day Mm -hmm. and it's hard work i think but pam makes a point of saying in this episode that when Jim finds something he's really excited about, he's so good at getting other people excited about it too. And so what is so great about her in this moment is she's noticing something about someone else that they probably don't know about themselves that is so wonderful and admitting that this is something she likes about him. And that's just, again, I think that's a, a major component of her wholesomeness is that she's able to both notice and appreciate something about someone else that is adding to the net benefit of everyone else in the room. Because everyone has fun during the Office Olympics, well,
1: right? And there's nothing quite like... And I don't think this is necessarily a romantic thing. I agree. I think this is a uh, a human type. I have a friend, Josiah, who... Like we've been friends and for uh, over twelve years now, and roommates for more than half of that, and like he knows me really well, and like he'll just know how I feel about something, and he'll be like, "Oh," and he'll notice something, be like, "Yeah, that's a David moment," or like he'll pump me up and like you know hype his boy as we as we sometimes say, and I think people like Josiah or people like Pam. They notice the things a like you pointed out that we don't necessarily notice about ourselves, but they also notice the things that really matter to us. And I think when she points that out to Jim, that makes Jim feel really good because she's noticing a a joy in him.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think she points it out to Jim in that episode. I mean, she obviously says things like that to Jim
1: later when they're yes, more together. Yes, no, but she does. Yeah, she does point it out to him about things. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and yeah, that's so ne- like because when that kind of thing is pointed out to you especially if it's a positive thing, you get the first rush of being like, oh, they noticed a positive thing I did. That's really good. And then you get the bonus, more substantial or substantive long-term rush of realizing, oh, they're the kind of person who notices those kind of yes. things about me. Yes,
1: <laughs> They care about so me genuinely. So you
0: extrapolate from the instance to the person. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And with Pam, that extrapolation is totally
1: justified. And... Building that. What a feeling. Let's go. Let's use the opposite to compare it to. There's nothing quite like someone that you're supposed to be close with you who just doesn't really get those things. Like maybe they don't know. Like they buy you a shirt, but it's the wrong size, <laughs> or they <laughs> yeah. notice something that you you're kind of paying attention to, but don't realize it's just something that you just distract yourself with, but it's not the most important thing to you. Mm-hmm. And then they'll buy you a gift for it. Like that. That hurts, right? Because it's like you're supposed to know me and you've just totally missed the mark. And actually I think you, when buying presents this is a really ho- hard thing to do, right? Cuz you don't want to buy someone something and then them not like it. Like that's the tension. That's the the momentary panic is like are they going to like it? Cuz you're like I don't want to buy them something that they're going to be like, "Oh, mm-hmm. this isn't really me." Cuz then then you're it's not just that you're they're giving you're giving them something and they don't really like it. It's that you're giving them something and you don't even really know them. Yeah.
0: And then you passively will be like, well, do you even pay attention to the world? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like our, how much of your sights are outside of your head and how much of them are inside? Because this is something we are like categorically unable to know about somebody else. Like I can't ever, strictly speaking, know what you think. No. The best approximation is what I say. what you say. And then I think even better than that is how I view your behavior over the long term.
1: Right. But even then, you're viewing that through your subjective lens mm-hmm. and interpretation, right?
0: Yeah. But I can still, that's why I think over a long period of time, the more data, the better. Yeah. <laughs> kind yeah. of thing, because it, more data is a bulwark against your biases. And I think what Jim would, what Jim notices, because he's also self aware, is that Pam not only is kind, but she's the kind of person who pays attention to the world to find the goodness in it. And I don't know, like I just would agree with Jim in saying, I think that is unbelievably attractive for yeah. a person, a way of a person to be. Oh
1: yeah. I'm on a hundred percent agreement.
0: But I, this is, I mean, Jim does this a lot too, but I love how, cause Jim and Pam are, our sane characters in an absurd world. Like there are grounded anchors that keep us, I would say they keep us coming back because they're they're what keep the show tethered to reality <laughs> as marginally as possible. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what's the genius of the writing is that every now and again, it happens way more to Jim, but every now and again, even with Pam, she gets caught in her own bias or funny way of being or like a mild hypocrisy even. And so in the Office Olympics she gets called out by Angela in her burgeoning feelings for Jim. Like Angela is just saying, well, you like him, obviously. And Angela knows she's engaged. So there's all of those social dynamics going on. And it just made me think like, because Pam does not like to be confronted with this news. And I wonder, it made me think, I wonder if there's something to the idea that for, especially for incipient romances, to talk about them before they're ready is a good way to kill them. Oh, I think so. And there's some great ideas out there. I read in, if you ever want to, you should just read Steven Pinker, no matter what. But in his, great, in his book, The Stuff of Thought, Language as a Window into Human Nature, he talks about how one of the reasons why, especially with dating, but in many scenarios, we aren't literal in our wording. We use euphemisms or idioms or veiled expressions is because we have this kind of weird social vi- viable sense of plausible deniability in case the other person doesn't agree with us mm. and to have angela call her out in a actual feeling she's having for jim in a sense makes it real in a way that if it's still just in her head in a flirty way it's not and the thing is now pam isn't just able to enjoy passively the good feelings of flirting with Jim, she has to think about what the ramifications of that might be. Yeah, what's the reality (laughs) I'm dealing with here? And, you know, I just think that that is such a great human... This show captures the human element of its characters maybe better than any... I would say better than any comedy show ever has, this show captures the human element. Maybe
1: any show. Yeah, I mean,
0: well, dramas are intending to do that, especially modern ones do that so well. But
1: again, often dramas are... Putting people in extreme situations and showing us the human, yeah, resilience. Well, this is the story, everyday situation. But this is like, this is how most people live. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've often found funny is history is just these points in time. But like the vast majority of history is, I think you said this the other day to me. They assume a hundred billion people have lived. How many na- How many of them do you know their names? Most people have lived and died in relative. Normality and routine, mm-hmm. and and, it's and the what what does the, the office capture? The everyday. It common. captures the everyday, and the. I think we said this in the last episode, but I'll reiterate it. It captures the joy of everyday life, mm-hmm.
0: and again, I think I mean we've talked about it's a it's a beat in good writing for TV and movies to not make and literature. So any story to not make your heroes too good. And to not make your villains too bad mm-hmm. to the point where they're not believable. So, P- Pam's foibles make her way better as a character, I yes. think, than yeah. if she was just always in charge of everything going on in her own head. Yeah. Great art does this. Great art shows you the flaws in people and you actually love them more because of that.
1: Well, in our Goodwill Hunting episode, we talk about how when will was looking at the woman and saying oh she's just going to end up not being perfect right like i'm going to find all her flaws and w- and what what <laughs> what does robin williams say to him he says that's the beautiful part and i think uh i was recently listening to a lecture on this very topic and it, it's really the vulnerabilities that make us human when do we love Pam the most? I think I love Pam the most in two moments. One where she's just standing there alone with her art and nobody comes. <laughs> I mean, you just, your heart breaks for her. And then yeah. and the other one is when she's like going through this day and she's trying to record her daughter's, you know, dance recital and she doesn't hit the record button. Right. And then Jim's yelling at her and it's like, she's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's, the most beautiful and like where you love her the most, not the most beautiful in the, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Her soul is the most
1: beautiful. You see her soul and you love it. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's in those vulnerable moments. Yeah. And I think that she,
0: she becomes what is worth pursuing for Jim and becomes like, what's worth pursuing for herself by, starting to better pay attention to those things about herself that she's previously glossed over and then come back later to make her life a little bit more difficult than it needs to. Because she's not not honest with herself about her feelings for Jim, things in the first few seasons are way harder than they need to be. Yes. (laughs) Way, way harder. Anyone with half a brain and Angela know what's going on here. To admit to herself... What Angela is saying to her about her feelings for Jim brings in a whole new situation where she has to be like, well, okay, I guess I got to talk to Roy about this. It's not comfortable, you know?
1: No, and which is something she struggles with, as we talked about before. And
0: and so her struggles are wonderful, I think, because they're so realistic. And, okay, here's another great example of her kindness and wholesomeness. She gives good news to Oscar about Dwight. But only so Angela will overhear. And so she's like caring even to her frenemy. You yeah. know, like even to, so, like Angela has been, Angela is Pam's rival, even though Pam doesn't know why or care about it. Angela always seems a little bit, Pam is the hot girl to Angela. I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. right yeah. Pam is the one that gets all the attention and Angela takes digs at her all the time. And even to her, Pam
1: is kind. This is another thing that I just love in other humans. When they get joy from bringing other joy to people, mm-hmm. like giving the perfect gift that people are like, "Oh, this is you did so good," and then they feel joy over that. And there are moments where Pam just gets so happy giving the perfect gift to Jim. Yeah, and she's like, "Oh, I hope it's gonna be good enough." Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> right? but like when he's happy, she's just so happy <laughs> that he's happy. Yeah, and people who can get joy from other people's joy, oh, like, yeah. those are.
0: And she she grows in it, too. Like, she's such a... Maybe more than any other character in the show, you see her growth from the beginning to the end of it. Like, her capacities at the end compared to the beginning, not just at work, but, like, psychologically and presence-wise are incredible. Oh, yeah. And I think probably it's hard to pick of which of the things I like about her the most, but definitely one of them that's in contention is that she seems to me other than maybe Stanley, but I think Stanley it's not impressive in Stanley because he's cynical or an ass about it. But Pam is the most honest person in the office. Like she says what's actually happening or what she actually thinks about something way more than anyone else does. Like Jim is trolling. Dwight is clueless about, well no Dw- sorry Dwight actually says what he's thinking too but Pam is saying what she's thinking with also caring about what other people <laughs> feel yeah yeah <laughs> and I mean, she's and she sticks up
1: for herself she's, she's doing it she's speaking the truth in love or trying to whenever she can yeah
0: but I mean like even in a lot of like the meetings or in the office whenever there's craziness happening and usually from Michael there'll be like an insincere question from Jim there'll be a dwight kissing ass there'll be andy trying to kiss ass even more blatantly i guess angela probably is honest asks honest questions too but no one really listens to her kevin is totally clueless but pam will be like i don't think we should do that (laughs) or something like that or like pam seems like she's asking sincere questions And no one else really seems like they're asking sincere questions to Michael. No. But the one I noticed the most that I loved, it's in the fun run episode. So this is the episode where we find out Pam and Jim are dating. And it's an aside, and they've candid camera caught Jim and Pam driving home together. And so they're uh, presumably the documentary crew is asking them about it. And Pam says, I gave him a ride home because we are dating. And so it made me think of that owning what you want and care about in life. So she's in charge of her own importances. And it reminded me a little bit of a scene in the book Atlas Shrugged, which is not a particularly great novel from a literary point of view, although I think there's some really interesting philosophical ideas in it. But there's a part of Atlas Shrugged where the protagonist, Dagny, is going on to this radio station and they are she's having a kind of an illicit affair with this guy hank uh reardon and the radio station or the news who are all public like their government run are trying to catch her they're like trying to they're trying to bait her into something and uh, she goes on and and uh and and hank's married i think that's why it's yes and so they ask what her relationship is with her, with Hank and she knows what they're getting at. They're just trying to be underhanded and slimy and all those things to try and catch her in something. And so her very, her very first answer to that question is he is my lover. (laughs) Just straight up. And just owning it, you know? And I mean, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a, a similar sentiment to what Tyrion says to Jon Snow in the very, I think it's the very first episode of Game of Thrones where he says, wear your weakness as a breastplate. So that your enemies can't use it
1: against you. There's, there's a great uh, line <laughs> from a uh, Stars' song, which "Take the weakest thing in you and beat the bastards with it." Mm-hmm. When you can, and that that goes back to knowing yourself, and and actually it's a lot of you can't do that if you don't admit you don't, if you don't think mm-hmm. you have weaknesses. But if you know you have weaknesses, or you know you have vulnerabilities, and you take those things, and you're like, "This is part of who I am," yeah, and I embrace these things.
0: Well, Pam has no time for rumors. Exactly, She yeah. has
1: no time for speculation.
0: She has no time because, because she knows she loves Jim and that's what she wants. And yeah. she doesn't care. Yeah, And that, that I think is a, a, like a transformative moment in her character in the show where she's like, okay, all of the like kind of uncertainties of what she was going for before with Roy and her love life, those are over. And this is like a new Pam, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and it just adds to my, I guess, adoration of her, but just like the ability to do that in general, that kind of, that's more great growth. She has a funny joke about Michael doing something. Yeah, there's other better people out there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I love those kind of like jokes she makes about Michael. Again, she's up for stuff. She plays along with the game in the murder episode, you know, like she's just like willing to, yeah, let's do it, yeah, <laughs> let's yeah. play mm-hmm. uh still like she's so fun, she's such a fun person again, that's really another thing I love about her when she's on Matt leave in the happy hour episode. She's so happy to see everyone, even Kevin. <laughs> she's so cooped up, <laughs> she knows Dwight so well, he's sulking, not scheming in the work bus episode. <laughs> So like just the attention
1: she pays to the other people is again I think she's actually similar to Michael in that sense like she knows what makes others tick what other like intimate details about everyone else in the office too
0: and then in that work bus episode she appreciates how Jim tried to get her a pie and subtly shows him so even though like things are not going really Jim's way in that episode and Dwight's like getting the better of him all the time and uh, Jim's getting flustered Pam sees the intention you know like her there's there's such a important wisdom to Pam in her ability to see what people are trying to do, which I think is why this leads into my favorite moment of Pam in the show, which like you would think of anyone who should hate Michael the most. It could be Pam. Like Michael makes life harder for Pam than maybe anyone else in the office. Yeah. And demeans her and talks down to her and, doesn't talk to her as a person but i think pam's ability to see people's intentions of their heart is why she ends up loving michael and the scene it's the last scene where we see michael in the show it's the goodbye michael episode and michael has just said goodbye to everyone else but pam was out because they think Michael's leaving the next day. So she goes and I think she says the king's speech. This right. <laughs> is the afternoon show she goes to. But she catches up to him in the airport. Michael's already given his microphone away and she runs. I don't know how she gets past security, but she runs in to say goodbye to Michael. And I mean, I cry every, or I tear up every single time. It doesn't matter, right? Just you put it on and I'm tearing up seeing that scene because it's like, if you've seen this scene you know exactly why you tear up like it's in the distance you've you've thought this whole time Pam's not going to get a goodbye with Michael and this is like killing Michael and you've just had this unbelievably emotional goodbye between Michael and Jim so you're like
1: oh fuck like (laughs)
0: Pam needs to get there and Pam is so mature that she can go give a lot like run to the airport to give a loving goodbye to the person who's at least ostensibly, has demeaned her the most in this show's run. And it's because Michael is the last person to leave any of their corner when they have their own flaws and foibles come up. And I mean, Michael goes to her art show. Mm-hmm. And I think that just something that is so bewitchingly capturing about the show to our souls is how Pam can notice those things in other people. And even in the person like Michael, who it'd be the easiest to not notice it in. She finds the good in others, I guess. And the good in the people you would least have motivation to find it in. Yeah. Yeah. To such a degree that she's willing to, I guess, run through airport security and make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, <I've... laughs> and so, like, all of that, I think, is contributing to her beautiful wholesomeness her wholesomeness is the beginning, not the end of her character, you know? And I, I think that that's why she captures us. Hey, everybody. David and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise please send us an email at reallytruefiction@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. <laughs> And that, of course, now brings us to Jim,
1: the hero of our tale. <laughs> the hero of our tale, uh, <laughs> at least the victor kind of. of our tale. He yeah, seems to be the one that comes I, out. Well, Dwight comes out in one way, right? In the sense that he gets—I think—he has the best narrative arc. But honestly, like Jim's a pretty lucky guy. I Things think go pretty well for Jim. Yeah,
0: I think that Jim, even though Pam is my favorite, I think Jim is probably the most important character. The most important. Yeah. Not because he's the most lovable, but because I think that what he does... So the way he treats Dwight gets the funniest stuff out of Dwight in the show. Right. So the best of Dwight is because of what Jim does to Dwight, I think. The best of Pam
1: is is the relationship? No. No,
0: I, I don't think... Jim is definitely helps bring out a great side. So Pam, I don't know. I think Pam shows some great things with Jim and without Jim, but I think Dwight is at his funniest for us as the audience when Jim is antagonizing him. Mm-hmm. And we need Jim to not only antagonize Dwight to be funny, but we need to we need to feel like we're in on the joke with Jim while he's antagonizing Dwight. And I think he does that really well with all the ways that he does his like takes at the camera. And his little <laughs> Jim. Of all the characters, Jim feels the most like he's communicating to
1: us, the audience, with what's going on. That's very true, and I
0: think that's what makes him so important. Is that he's
1: that he's a con our conduit, basically. Yeah. Well, and as you pointed out earlier, he's the him. He and Pam are the the anchor that you know. Yeah. That keeps us in reality and for this show.
0: Probably with the way that the show is so set up, in how it's set up, all of the takes to the camera that Jim does I mean in a show that is aware of the cameras it feels like Jim is talking to us way more than obviously not in like the monologues that they do when they're obviously talking to us every character is but it feel communicating is a better word I think Jim is communicating with us so he gets that part of Dwight and I think also the way that Jim reacts to Michael is so important to the show too he kind of is trolling him, not really taking him seriously, because Michael can exasperate, like as an audience, even he can exasperate us. And I love Jim's more or less chill reactions to Michael that right. are able to calm. So yeah, I think.
1: So he's a if calming you think if you think for the audience, yeah, too.
0: if you think Jim as signaling to the audience of things to feel, I think that he. That's he's why he's support. so crucial to the show. Okay, yeah. all right, I can I can get it. I can get behind that. <laughs> and of course, he's just so goddamn funny. <laughs> all right, give us your funniest Jim. His, his sanity is so funny in the sh- in a show that's so absurd. His sanity is often a, gr- a punchline, not even just a reaction. True. <laughs> well, okay. Here's a great – oh, so like I mentioned with the way he talks to Mike – the way he talks to Michael to confuse Michael, It's actually kind of reminds me of the way sometimes I talk to kids at work to confuse them, to deflect the <laughs> okay, attention yeah. if it's going <laughs> negative. So in the Office Olympics episode, Michael has been out of the office all day and at his condo, I'm pretty sure. And so they've done the Office Olympics. They're having the medal ceremony, but Michael and Dwight come back at that time. And instead of telling them what's going on because then they have to admit that they didn't do work all day, they're just saying, hey – you won the gold medal. Good job, Michael. Oh, I can't remember if he wins the gold. He's on the podium. I'm pretty sure he wins the gold. And then they start, because it's the Office Olympics, they're starting to play the American National Anthem at the ceremony. And and Michael says, why are we playing the National Anthem? And Jim says to him, because your condo is in America. <laughs> <laughs> and then... What are the? I think maybe Phyllis made these like kind of paper doves that go behind them to signify peace and the Olympic spirit of brethren and humankind uh, sticking together. And Michael says, "What are those?" And Jim doesn't miss a beat and he says, "Those are the doves." (laughs) And he just so uses these simple, simple answers to befuddle Michael. And because I mean, for Michael's own thing, Michael is so overcome with emotion because he feels like people are being so kind to him and cheering for him that he doesn't question it. But I do think that that is almost a perfect style of the way Jim talks to Michael in the show to confuse him, throw him off the scent. And what I love about that for Jim as a character is that he's so quick thinking to realize that actually all you need to do to trick Michael is just kind of tell him what's
1: happening (laughs) <laughs> and he'll be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Here we go. You know, like he's, yeah. he's
0: so good at the right comment or joke at the right time to, A, make the audience chuckle, but also to kind of keep everyone else a little bit off kilter to know what's going on. Now, that the shadow side of that can be it's a way of keeping a distance between yourself and other people. And maybe Jim is guilty of that a little bit with everyone except Pam, but I think he, it grows on him. Like, his ability to shorten that distance but keep that style of trolling, I guess, almost, is such a charming aspect of the show and one that makes me feel very deep and warm every time he does that.
1: Yeah. Huh. I guess my favorite things about Jim have always been kind of his loyalty to Pam Yep. I, I, I really appreciate, even it's funny having been in a long distance relationship myself but also watching The Office regarding long distance relationships, it's very interesting that they make that kind of the most difficult thing mm-hmm. and I think one of the most tragic moments of The Office is when Pam and Jim are fighting because they're in a the long distance relationship and you're like, oh no, are they going to make it? But then realizing like you said, that Jim chooses Pam as kind of the thing that's going to give him meaning in life and decides he's willing to sacrifice basically anything mm-hmm. to be with her and to live that way. But I wonder, is that realistic or is that actually more romantic than is practical? Is he going to be okay with, they don't really address the fact, is he going to be okay in later years with saying, well, I gave up everything for her? Uh, I don't. I mean, I hope so
0: <laughs> because everyone wants the Jim and Pam relationship. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. I, okay, now I'm having a little bit of a hazy memory here. I feel like at the end of the show, they are together and things are going well and they're moving to Philadelphia. No, no that is it. I mean, because he is in that company he's a part of, the
1: athlete. Yeah, but I, I guess I'm not, I'm not uh, I'm saying that more as like that's kind of the choice he seems to make. And then she's like, oh no, I will never ask you to give up what you love. And I mean, the paper company is kind of shutting down at that somehow, amazingly. <laughs> the demand just isn't what it used to be for paper. My question is should a person be giving up their dreams to be with another person? <laughs> because uh, that is a motif in this romance. Yeah, I. this is not a very
0: exciting answer, but I think I'd have to say it depends on a person. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) fun. (laughs) I think this is something about me that is probably annoying. When I hear, should a person give up on their dreams to be with someone else, I would want to say, well, what do you mean by dreams, and what did those mean to you? Because again, I think dreams is a word that covers too much ground so if you want to make it more narrow something like okay should a person give up on the things that are directly in their life that they are pursuing that they can tangibly talk about in this moment like totally drop all of that to go do something else entirely i mean it really depends on what you
1: want more (laughs) like how do you know what you want more maybe that's a fair that's a very good criticism To say, and I agree, dream is too broad of a word, so let me narrow it down so we can get to the heart of this. Okay. So Jim's big issue with himself, and I think this is an issue that a lot of people face, is that they don't pursue the things they want to do. Instead, they pursue the things that are easy. Right? Mm -hmm. They don't they don't take the step of doing the difficult thing because doing the difficult thing will get them to that to their desire. Instead, they kind of you know stay where they are. Don't move forward. Don't try new things. Don't you know <laughs> spend hours and hours editing a podcast because right? <laughs> right. that's boring, right? They don't put the work in, and Jim doesn't put the work in for most of the office. And then what happens is we see him actually starting to do that. Mm-hmm. And then the big question is, well, how do they, How do you bring two lives together? When one is pursuing the dreams and the other isn't kind of thing, right? Well, hard work. (laughs) And and, yeah, but what I mean by dreams, so just going back to the definition of what I mean by dreams is, I'm talking about that thing you know you're driving towards, that that gut longing. If to be with someone you have to give that up, is that worth it? I
0: don't, I guess that's not a question that can be an abstract question.
1: It has to be a, yeah, practical. It has
0: to be one to any given person with every relevant detail rolled out in its extremities so that every bit of information is on the table. Because, so, I mean, I want to bracket aside our knowledge or not of Jim's, finding meaning in his life because really to be fair we're only given the glimpses of what he does at work so we we don't know how much meaning or not he's finding in his personal life away from work because that's never in the show but we'll bracket that aside so we can just say like meaning through his vocation yeah i think that probably for someone like jim it is a subconscious gnawing at the back of his mind about the fact that he's not really progressing or he's not really doing things that he thinks is meaningful. He gets a lot of kick. He gets his kicks out of pranking Dwight and hanging out with Pam. And I think that that is probably those two things are probably the reason he sticks around for so long. But I mean, again, when it's not with Pam, like when there's after the casino night, he goes to the Connecticut Stanford um, branch yeah I think the most legitimate criticism of Jim is that kind of wishy-washiness of his own life that he seems to show it seems for Jim like yeah it is worth it to not pursue I mean we get we do get some tense drama in I think it's season nine where it's he's starting to drift away and then (laughs) <laughs> for some reason, one of the guy who holds the boom mics, this Brian guy, <laughs> someone up going after Pam, Pam becomes interested <laughs> in and, you know, whatever. I, I think they do write some good tension in there. I mean, we have such a unique vantage point for this specific relationship than we ever do for anyone else having to face a question like that in that we have literally hours and hours of evidence of how much better jim's life is because pam is in it do you know what i mean like we we get to see so many of those little private and even intimate interactions that they have with each other that for like i guess for me they tip the scales towards like well of course jim made the right decision yeah by not leaving i,
1: I see i i think and what I find so appealing about that, I guess, as a bit of a hopeless romantic myself sometimes, is that idea of, like, abandoning yourself for another person and, like, building a life together with them. And there's also the nobility of, you know, the quiet life. Um, One of my favorite things that's been said on this podcast is when you were talking about your love for Canada, and, you like, you don't need to broadcast it to the world because, you know, you know it's real and it's solid and it's there, and it doesn't need to be loud and proclaimed. And it's like I've often noticed that the people who brag about their relationships the most on social media are often the least positive <laughs> in real life. Like they're they're trying to prove something. They're putting on a show. Whereas the people who almost never talk about their relationships on social media tend to be, from what I can tell, doing very well. Mm-hmm. And so going back to this, I, I see what you're saying. And i th- I, I do think there's something romantic about it because i think there has to be sacrifice in order for something to be truly valuable Mm -hmm. i mean and you know me like my
0: psychological tendency is just annoyance with dichotomies like one of the things that i guess is an intellectual pet peeve of mine is the moment where i feel like no one in the group i'm with or no one in the situation that we're talking about has even has even considered the possibility of a third option and so my predilection mentally is to go, okay, so is it a zero-sum game? Like, does it have to be dreams or relationship? Like, what actually – let's put on our problem-solving hats and get to the point where we can say both. Or, like, maybe only 80% of either, but somehow keeping the majority of it intact. And I think that that's
1: actually what happens. No, in you this know? case, I, I do think and, – and it seems kind of um... – I guess, fantastical in that sense. Because I think often, the interesting thing is that the personalities of both Jim and Pam are people who have not pushed themselves very hard in their professional lives, let's say. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. They're like pretty regular folk. And often I find people like that get kind of stuck in their ways, let's say. And they get into a routine And it's very hard for them to get out of it. And it's hard for them to change and start doing whatever it is they've longed to do. And so when Jim does break out of that, which is basically... And and Pam tries to break out of it, too. Interestingly enough, decides she doesn't want it more than she wants Jim. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. Her dream, she lets die for Jim. Okay, sorry. Remind me, which which is that, like, she... She wants to be an artist and like so. She, is that the moment she moves, moves back to Scranton? Yeah, she from moves New York? back to Scranton right, okay. from New York and leaves art school. She doesn't finish, mm-hmm. but I don't think she, that means that she. What her truest longing of her heart was to continue working at the paper company. No, 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 definitely not. I okay. I honestly,
0: I I'm not trying to like weasel out of this. Like I honestly think that we have a paucity of data of their lives to be able to give thorough analysis of their own sense of self meaning because we don't see very much of their outside of office mm-hmm. life. So, yes, for the sake
1: of argument, <laughs> sticking straight uh, totally with vocation, we we do have statements by both of them though being like what am i doing here? Uh-huh. This isn't what i want. But you'll
0: notice it seems I can't remember as much with Pam but I would guess it's this way, and definitely with Jim, that only really happens when th- when it feels like, for Jim, the future with Pam is not a live option. Yes. yes, right. Like in um in the William James sense of a live or a closed option. And I mean, I can definitely attest to this even personally. And I mean, it's not maybe it's maybe not the most noble thing about the human <laughs> tendency, but for Jim with Roy, even when she's when Pam's in a relationship with Roy. Pam has not yet given a final no to Jim kind of thing. I mean, they haven't talked about it, but because there hasn't been a final answer, let's say, and they haven't, and it's still nascent and growing and incipient, and this burgeoning romance between Jim and Pam, when Pam's still with Roy, it's still, at least the door is a little bit open, which keeps it a live option for Jim, which is why I think he sticks around so much in the first couple seasons And then you'll notice that's exactly the reason, like we said, he left when that wasn't a live option. When she closes the door. When she closes the door on him. And then I think what the show, this is a show thing, and the writers of the show being great little kind of meditators on how life works, is that through kind of random serendipity and confluence of events, they're back together again, and they just happen to be not entangled. Well, I mean, Jim is at first with Karen. Yeah, yeah, But then just through confluence of events, they happen to not be entangled with a significant other. And this is kind of like this, the moment where both Jim and Pam are not in a relationship with anybody else and they're in the same town together is probably what Jim was praying for a couple years earlier when Pam was with Roy. To be honest, just to throw it on the table, Jim was waiting for Pam and Roy to break up. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, I think it was because of his conversation with Michael at the at the booze cruise, where Michael's just like, you got to say what you feel. I'm pretty sure (laughs) very hilariously Michael inspires Jim, (laughs) Uh, which, again, is probably Michael's kind of like tentacle into everything charm that you just don't understand. But you still feel Jim isn't willing to wait anymore. You know, he's got to get an answer because he feels like he's waited too long. now. Yeah, he's got to take now, that step. This is why I'm not saying it's a super noble motive, but I think it's a very understandable one. And I have in my life known girls that I wanted to keep around in my life in case they ever became single. <laughs> <laughs> right. And think of that what you will, but it's true. There's something about them that I found so attractive. I didn't want to be make their life any more <laughs> difficult than I had to, But there's a part of my heart that's like, oh, my gosh. That would be such a wonderful thing to have. But
1: but how often does the gym moment come to you, would you say, where you're like, you have to say something?
0: Probably more when I was like a teenager. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. (laughs) I feel like one of the great, this is going to seem maybe um, counterintuitive, one of the great adult, mature epiphanies of my life is that I don't have to end up with every girl I like. (laughs) Like (laughs) I can actually let go of a crush or even maybe something bigger than a crush if it's not the right thing for whatever reason. And I had a few hard lessons. Well, one in particular, really hard lesson of that when I was living in Korea. I put so much stock into this thing and it didn't pan out. And then I was like, well, I fucked that up because of all the stock I put into it. And I made it, I mean, not to say I was, I wasn't totally unrealistic, but I just didn't, I didn't go about it the right way. And so now, like, I still get that rush when I meet someone, I like, I think, oh my gosh, she's cool, she's nice, she's pretty. And there's like that little bit of like, oh, maybe this will happen. And then for one reason or another, where it just doesn't, it's not going to be a good live option, I'm able to, more easily walk away from it you that's,
1: know and that's an interesting thing about jim right is it seems like he has a lot of live options it's not like he doesn't have a fairly heavy dating life hey, he's right? handsome and charming <laughs> and tall <laughs> handsome and charming and tall yeah yeah and so uh he seems to be doing just fine and yet he never really seems happy with anyone except pam
0: yeah and so i think Maybe we're answering this question slowly here, but because Pam has recurred once or twice in his life and all of the tense things they kind of get through, I don't, I, I really, I really passionately believe this. I don't think you can overemphasize the value of being in a relationship with someone that you get along with. Yeah. The higher order pleasure it is to trust someone's reaction, know their sense of humor, know what they'll care about, and demonstrate for that for them, and they do it for you. All of that, like you can't ever overemphasize how important that is. And I feel like by the time Jim has to make these really tough decisions about potentially following a different opportunity or being with Pam the value that he has in
1: that and he, he realized yeah. what he has because i mean
0: really. if you this is something i think is not well articulated enough to like young people especially but like money is just one form of value in the social economy obviously time but relationships lifestyle form of living enjoying your work hobbies enjoying your work like, if you don't like your work and I'm i spending think a lot of time doing maybe that a, a more charitable reading of what jim can do is that by the time he has to make tough decisions he's able to take in many more forms of value in his own decision making process and i think that's the benefit of the doubt i would give jim i think he has integrity it's tough like he kisses pam when she has a boyfriend or a fiance and like That's at one level, obviously, we want to be like, "Oh, that's bad, don't do that." And another level, like, what's that expression? "All's fair in love and war." Like, there's a kind of, um, there's a, there's a, there's the Hegelian tragedy in loving two people, where it's a collision of rights, you know, and there's no like really good way to determine who and like what are we supposed to think (laughs) in the office scenario? Jim is clearly a better
1: partner for Pam than Roy is actually this is one of my favorite things about the office is when they go to Roy's wedding and he's like completely transformed his life and he's learned a piano and like and Pam's standing there like oh he he never did that for me <laughs> like and she's like kind of upset about it yeah yeah well I mean <laughs> and it's like oh, okay good Roy, did, Roy up, grew you know, up from her, and he turned out yeah. pretty good yeah because he was horrible to mm-hmm. her like this is something that I think about a lot is, have you ever heard of uh, Peter Pan syndrome? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Basically, boys who don't want to grow up and yeah. they uh, and they just stay kids. And, like, Roy is a perfect example of this. Hey,
0: like, let's not be too hard on the Peter Pan boys. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, might hit, that might hit a bit Clue Too Close to Home.
1: <laughs> no, I, I agree. But I think about that a lot. I'm like, okay, well, maybe, like, I need to do some growing up because, uh, you know, there's some things... And that—that's one of the things I love about Jordan Peterson. That's one of the things I love about so many of the podcasters that I listen to. Joe Rogan taking responsibility for your life. You know, building the life you want. You build it. It's not something that's given to you. One of the big issues I have with incels is that they want not—not not just their relationship with women, which I think is horrendous, and their opinion of women, but their relationship with themselves is they think the world owes them something, mm-hmm. and the world doesn't owe you shit. Uh, yeah. What's that? There's a
0: great Mark Twain line where he says, um, the world owes you nothing. It was here
1: first. <laughs> that, that's a great line. That's exactly kind of what I'm getting at. And now, I'm not saying Roy's that far. I mean, he has a job and he's doing some things, but but he doesn't treat her, he doesn't value her. He takes her for granted. He takes her for granted. She does all these nice things for him. He doesn't really seem to do very many nice things for her. And, like, I'll be honest, I was in a relationship where that happened to me, and it was because I didn't want to grow up because I was more consumed by, I guess, momentary pleasures than responsibility and, like, wanting to go out and drink with the boys. And a lot of people stay there. And I really liked that Roy, they don't let Roy stay there. Yeah, he grows. He grows, he grows and it's funny. Here's the part of that I think is interesting about that. Jim is the superior option, then, mm-hmm. but then she's like, "Wait a second. Two things: one, Roy's a superior option now. Uh, at the time, that might be a stretch. Not not the superior option in the um, like you said, it's almost incalculable what it's like to be with someone that you get along with, and they have that. But like when she's seeing like the trappings, right—the big house, the the business, the successful business. He's learned piano, the romance that he's showing, but then Roy even says to her, "Thanks, her, because he realized that he wasn't treating people the way he should because of her." Mm-hmm. And I just, I love that there's that development there, that also helps Jim up his game too. Definitely, one hundred. I mean, it's human nature to compete
0: for anything that you want, anything you're striving for, whether it be a sports title or. A potential mate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, exactly. I guess I'm still trying to work out and cogitate on your original
1: question. Yeah, well, about I, I guess we, dreams versus. Yeah, a and I think oh, this is what I would say on that after what you've said because it's got me thinking about it a little bit differently. I agree. I don't think it should be a dichotomy. You, sh- it shouldn't be. Well, are you going to be in a relationship or are you going to pursue your life goals? And I think the reason I brought that up is because I think that is very commonly how people view relationships now. It's like, well, am I going to have a career or am I going to have a family? Am I, am I going to be successful or am I going to have romance? And it's interesting because I think there's a a theme, whether it be um, movies like The Notebook, where it's like, you no, know, the happiest people, they didn't go on and accomplish things in their careers. Their love was enough. Love was what drove them. And actually, one of the things I appreciate about The Office, like you pointed out, is that they find a way to do both, but it isn't easy. It's really, really hard. Mm -hmm. That's the reality of the relationship, and that's the beauty of the relationship. Well, I
0: think one of the many incalculable jewels that this show leaves us with is that it kind of tricks us with so many surface-level nonsenses and absurdities, and yet, subversively, a very more kind of abstract but realistic thing were that to make an actual relationship work and with all of the things that come up is unbelievably hard work. Yes. And what I appreciate about Pam and Jim is their ability to mentally weather storms that come their way and learn from them and and not let it bring them down.
1: Here's the other thing that I wanted to point out is they both sacrifice their desire to be in proximity with the other person To let the other person pursue something that they want to try. Totally. And I I admire that a lot. And not only that, except and and so this is what (laughs) this is such a great moment. Like it's like you said, a gem, but it's when Pam is just really excited to tell Jim something because she just loves how excited Jim gets for her when she accomplishes something. Mm-hmm. And then he does not in that moment and how heartbreaking it is. That actually tells you more about their relationship than anything else, which is that, we, as we talked about earlier, Pam gets excited about things that she sees in yeah. Jim. And Jim gets excited. Pam! Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. And he
0: doesn't... Yeah, that was actually a moment where The Office got weirdly realistic. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is... It says something about the show, I think, if something that seems realistic
1: catches you that off guard. <laughs> well, I, actually, I think that's, that's how they get into your... They, they poke your heartstrings, right? They'll be absurd, 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 and then i will be like, oh, profound little moment. Yeah. Absurd, 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 profound little moment. Yeah, and it's great that that profound little moment is actually something negative. Yes. But... Totally understandable. Heart heartbreaking. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. and I think what that actually tells us, yes, that's a heartbreaking moment. But what it shows is the reason it's heartbreaking is because that's not the normal. Mm-hmm. The normal is that they they appreciate each other and they want to push each other. Yeah. So
0: I want to like bring up some more things about Jim that I noticed in this rewatch that I feel are really good indicators of a why we like him, but b just kind of why he settles us and is so, like, laudable. I really do, but, like, I'm not just trying to kiss Jim's ass here. Like, I really f- feel so much of the way Jim is is such an admirable way of being, not the least of which is his humor. I'm not going to pretend like I'm, like, that is very important to me, but he's so much more than just his humor um, in the injury episode where Michael burns his foot. It's obviously hilarious. Dwight smokes his head in a car crash. Well, like Dwight's trying to go help Michael, hits the pole, gets a concussion. And so then they have to actually, (laughs) eventually they have to take Dwight to the hospital because he has a concussion. And (laughs) there's that hilarious joke where Michael says to the doctor, hey, I've got a question for you. What's more serious, a foot injury or a head injury? (laughs) And the doctor says a head injury. And Michael's like, you don't have all the information yet. (laughs) but what was so great about jim in that is that dwight obviously has i mean michael can't believe that people aren't caring more about his injury than dwight's like that's a classic michael moment (laughs)
1: michael's the center of the universe yeah
0: yet jim sucks it up in this moment you know like jim's like yeah i'll do it okay it's like super inconvenient to the day to have to go to take dwight to the hospital and michael's being a little bitch about everything and so I can't remember who says it. it. might be Michael. Someone said, Michael's like, I can't drive. Jim, you drive. And instead of complaining or instead of saying, hey, why me? Jim's like, yeah, okay, fine. I'll do it. Like there's in a moment of poor me, pity, like, no, fuck off. I don't want to do that. Like make someone else do that. He just sucks it up. And I love, there's a kind of great, in in, in difficult moments in the show, I feel like there's an often really Admirable kind of stiff upper lip side of Jim, where he's able to take he, he he's able to be at the bottom of the chain for whatever the shittiest job is to do because I mean maybe he just doesn't want to deal with Michael <laughs> being Michael but I, I don't know like I feel so I, I feel an affinity to someone like that who's able to hey you're doing this shitty job now for no particular reason it's arbitrary it's like. If it'll keep the peace, and if it will, it's what Dwight needs. Fine, I'll do it.
1: And so, I and I do admire so that you, in a person. Are, are you admiring? Okay, I'm just trying to pinpoint because you don't want to be someone who's walked over and like. And I'm not saying that Jim is that way, but obviously you don't want to be someone who people just gives the shitty jobs do all the time. And and no, 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 doing. no. Well, I think. Are you correct? Me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is you admire people who who will kind of go and do the shitty thing because it needs to be done mm-hmm. and they're, and they're not upset about having to do it they're just doing it because yeah. shitty jobs need to be done to get the N- world going. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: much more what I mean. I mean like cuz Jim doesn't just capitulate to the no, whims no, of Michael not, for any not given his thing, right? Way at all, yeah. But in this moment where Dwight has a concussion and Jim's just so fed up with Michael. He got he's like, "You know what?
1: Okay, I'll do it." It's like people who, are, who go into action when tragedy happens or, or mm-hmm. who go into action when something needs to be done like, or like a glass breaks and they're the person who's immediately going to find the, the broom to, to, to wipe it up or to sweep it up. Yeah, I admire that in people too. Like the people, they're the, pra- the practical people who are like, oh, well, this has to be done and get it done. Yeah, I mean, I would say in the serious moments, Jim is the practical one. Yes, almost. And, all. He seems to be the, the one that calms everyone down. Like, yeah. okay, let's.
0: And there's a, there's a huge... I mean, it's so obvious that there's a great distinction between the way Jim is practical and the way Dwight is practical. Because Dwight's practicality is much more, I think, singularly focused on some sort of bottom line that is, like we talked about before, not exactly... As circumspect about everyone involved in the situation as it could be. And I think Jim's practicality is so good because it's triaged and it's taking into account everyone involved in the situation. You know, like he's way better at. He's got a
1: high EQ, right? He's got a high emotional intelligence.
0: Mm -hmm. And so that was just something I I really appreciate about him. I mean, I think we just mentioned this before too, but he's. I, I like how he doesn't react to a lot of the things that, like, the things that set. Michael and Dwight off, and Andy and a lot of the other characters, they don't set Jim off. Like, did you notice that? Like Jim doesn't get upset kind in the of way even that the other, keel. yeah.
1: Like he, he's not an emotionally volatile person. And
0: I actually attribute this probably because the rest of his life that is his own, so he doesn't need that validation from the Michaels and the Dwights right. of the world. Well, uh, that,
1: that's a fairly um, quintessential Jim characteristic: is he doesn't seem to need validation from his work. No. Like, that's not where he gets his meaning and purpose in life. No. I mean, if it was, he would be a tragic figure because <laughs> he doesn't feel like he, he's vastly underutilized. He, you know, his his talents are never, never even tapped to their potential. And yet, that's not, that doesn't matter to him. He's not striving in the way that Dwight is. Mm-hmm. He has a very different locus of control. and. His seems to be very much internal, like his emotions. But because he doesn't really get upset that much about anything now that I come to think of it. And actually, if you think about it, that's why one I think one of the reasons Pam loves him so much is because he's a rock. Yeah, no, he is. When everything is chaos at the wedding and it all seems to be just he's like, I know how I'm going to make this romantic for her. Give her a moment with just me so that all the rest of this that's going to be crazy and stupid, she'll be able to, to get through. Yeah, I mean, like he totally is definitely a rock,
0: and I yet I, I, I so that's obviously something again laudable about him. But and I mean we've talked about this in other podcasts. In good writing of of your heroes or your characters you want to admire, is that they're they're more believable when they aren't perfect. Yes, and I love of all of the characters whose flaws show. I love when Jim's flaws show the most because i mean most of the other characters they're other than pam every other character's flaws are actually part of the joke (laughs) like they they come out so much that's hard to even call them flaws (laughs) it's just kind of the way that that they are but here i'm going to run through a couple of the things that i noticed that i consider that humanize jim in a way that it shows that he's actually not in control of everything all the time yeah okay One of the things is he's always a little nervous around Roy, right? Right. He has a a realistic foible there.
1: He's like, Roy is probably Uh, right to beat the shit out of me.
0: Yeah. He doesn't like that Andy gets the honeymoon room the night before he can. (laughs) Like, that just makes him uncomfortable, and then he's out of control. When Pam's about to have their first baby, he's like kind of losing he's like i feel frazzled you know what i you know i don't use that word or you know what it means i use that word like he's he because he's out of the driver's seat yeah he's out not out of the driver's seat of the social environment but he's out of the gym driver's seat right when jim's in the gym driver's seat he is jim to the max right but when he's not he's frazzled and that's why he (laughs) uses that word right he's the one who spills the beans about yeah, um, accidentally. About Pam's about, pregnancy yeah. to Meemaw, and then he just keeps <laughs> sputtering and sputtering. <laughs> and I mean, that's a great moment, humor-wise, because he's actually trying to save the room from Michael, right? So his intention is to get Michael to shut the fuck up, <laughs> so, that, so that everyone can be spared of Michael, and yet, because of that, and he says something so nice there, too, that we'll get to in a second, but... There's a silliness and an out of controlness that he gets that I love when the, it's the episode. I didn't watch it for this run, but I, I know it so well. It's the episode where Dwight has sent a memo to the whole office saying that the dress code needs to be classier. And so he dresses in a tuxedo, <laughs> gels his hair back. And yet this is the day. Where Charles Minor, the new VP, shows up <laughs> yes. and Charles Minor has no time for Jim's nonsense. <laughs> like Charles Minor is actually the boss Dwight always wanted for Jim because he actually doesn't <laughs> let Jim like, get away with his he's shenanigans. Like, Jim, what are you doing? And Jim can't win and he accidentally kicks a he ducks on a pass from him. Charles Minor and smokes Phyllis in the face when they're playing soccer. And, <laughs> and he says he can play and, soccer and, and so can. and so now Jim's on the back foot because he's wearing a tuxedo on the day the VP's there, and so he's getting all this negative <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and That is so, a great episode. So, like, all of those little things, I think I talked about this, especially with Huck Finn, like, the, the, the believability of your hero goes up a thousand percent to me when they're not perfect.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the believability of Jim, as someone who is a rock, who is forthright and thoughtful and kind and funny, to me is not diminished by the fact that he's not that all the time. It's actually made stronger.
1: I wonder... Because I, I agree and I think all of the best characters are, I mean, uh, the, the more we see their humanity in, in them and attach that to our own humanity that we experience regularly, the, the more um, connected we feel to characters, I think we definitely feel that with Jim. And I I wonder why it is that we feel more affection for Jim, I think, in those moments and more laughter and mockery towards the other characters during those moments. Is it do you think it's because Jim as you said earlier is the the thing that ties us to normalcy? Maybe he's the one we maybe Jim and Pam are the people we see ourselves most in in the show. Like I, I mean, have you ever done that thing with friends where it's like who are what characters from the office <laughs> are we? Like yeah. nobody wants to be anyone but Jim and Pam, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, I've never met someone who's like, ah, yeah, I'm totally a Dwight, and I love it. <laughs> I,
0: yeah, true. I mean, I feel like I could pull off a Creed.
1: <laughs> Life goals. I always thought of you as more of a Meredith. Uh, yeah, I put out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I. Because is it only heroes that we want to see weakness? Because when we see weakness in, other, in the other characters, and there, there's a lot more weakness in the other characters... We don't find that endearing or connecting us to them, really. We 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 laugh at them, and it's not a kind laughter. Do you know what I mean? It's not a, oh, they're so funny. Mm-hmm. It's a, wow, they suck. Even Dwight, he's the butt of a lot of the jokes, and it's not in a, oh, we love Dwight. <laughs> it's a, man, Dwight's just got himself another pickle, or he's, he just keeps being thwarted.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, this, this feels like maybe some territory I'm not an expert in because it probably involves some like film or show theory, like how to make characters in such a way that you have the right contrasts so that you can, in the ways that are desirable, manipulate your audience into liking or not liking what they're supposed to like or not like. And I know that there, that exists, like that form of ways of making shows exist. I, I, I guess the reason we care more about Jim and Pam, well, I think the biggest reason we care more about them is that we know them way better than most. I mean, even though that this is an ensemble show, I still think there's four main characters. Like yeah, I think Michael, yeah. Dwight, Jim and Pam are the main characters of the show. Although we
1: get a lot of Andy.
0: We eventually do.
1: And, Aaron, and 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 more makes a lot of appearances.
0: they the all of the secondary characters make a massive stride forward after the second season, I think, and it's actually one of the great, beautiful things of the show is how much better the other characters get, but I think that we just get less of the other characters' souls than we get of Jim and Pam, like I think we get Jim and Pam bearing their soul way more than anyone else in the show except for maybe michael and so i think that also probably contributes to why we feel like even though it's way smaller the good michael wins out i I mean you said you you can't hate what you know i think that you can extend that continuous like you like more what you know more right well (laughs) yeah. yeah and so i think the biggest reason is because we know jim and pam more and because we know them more we see way more of the normalcy i mean like probably a character like Oscar is just as normal. We just get way less of his story than we get of those. And so I think that because the show is a comedy, we don't need more than one or two characters to really, to deeply care about in and have a kind of shared perspective with. I mean, it would probably be a little bit too muddled if everyone in our minds was as rich of rich yeah. as a character yeah. because it'd be hard to love anyone i mean this is i think this is a psychological trait like you once you start spreading your love it feels as like it diminishes yeah <laughs> in a weird way like that's True. probably why i mean there's I, I i'm not a psychologist again i'm just interested in it i think that there's probably something to the psychological notion that why you can't have more than like seven or 10 really good friends. You just don't have bandwidth for it. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I honestly think like it might not be a deeper reason than that. (laughs) why
0: We care about Jim and Pam more. Maybe we don't have
1: enough deep enough bandwidth for that many characters. Yeah.
0: Oh, well how many people's lives in real life can you follow with the complexity that it is to them? Yeah. I mean, that's not like maybe five, you know, yeah because paying attention to all those other people and your own life it's only twenty four hours in a day Yeah, you just don't have time <laughs> you know and so I don't know it'd be interesting to to think about what it would be like to follow everyone, but it does remind me of a a line from a, a song I think it was Amanda marshall I can't remember some singer in the early two thousand I think who there was a line in her song where everybody's got a story that would break your heart yeah and it's just you can't Make a TV show about that because people wouldn't care about it as much because it's too hard. Well, yeah, to it's follow. too hard
1: to care about every character. I
0: I get that. Yeah, I think that for a real life version is why we end up caring more about some people's lives than others. We just do. We yeah. care about our friends' lives more than we care about strangers' lives. <laughs> yep. it's just the way it is. The Joker and the real person, and so after their wedding, he talks about how Plan B was or plan C was getting married at the maid of the mist as they do plan B was marrying at the church and plan A was marrying her a long, long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and that mix of joke and sincerity is again, the admirably like why Jim is noble. I think like his, because I think it is noble to be funny and sincere. Like it's, it's important to be sincere for the deep moments and it's important to be funny for all of the rest of the moments that actually make up the tapestry of living. <laughs> Oh, yeah. and I love that about Jim. And in the goodbye, Michael episode, because Jim is the only person in the office who figures out that Michael's leaving that day, not the next day. Michael's plan is to leave tomorrow, he always says, but Jim is the only one who figures out because Jim has way, <laughs> way better intuition than anybody yeah. else. Yeah. It seems like everybody else in the office only seems to kind of know things, except for maybe Oscar. Everyone else kind of knows things only when they're told them (laughs) because they're so self involved in one way or another, right? Jim's paying attention, though. And he says, Goodbyes are a bitch, you know, both with tears in their eyes. And he's like, kind of jokey, kind of serious, in a beautiful Jim way. And tomorrow I can tell you what a great boss you turned out to be. And Jim is, I I don't know, like. Obviously, not as much as I get emotionally drawn out in Pam's goodbye to Michael, but Jim's goodbye to Michael is so simple and so sincere. And I mean, maybe I'm just a sucker for sincerity, but I love how Jim doesn't say more than he has to. I mean, he never does. And yet still conveys such deep emotion. Like I, I don't know. I think that there's there's a beauty in that kind of pers human type who is you know, able to be deep
1: without saying so much. Maybe he's a bit of a stoic. Do you think? Do, I I think that's what I admire about him, is there does seem to be a stoicism with him, and in that stoicism, uh, an economy of words. Right. He he's very careful with the words he he, he uses, like you said, but in that carefulness we get so much more meaning. He's also careful in the words that he uses with Pam. like, And that's something that I admire in people because it's not necessarily a, uh, a quality that I possess. <laughs> people who are who are quieter and only say things when they really mean them, that's something that I almost aspire to, I would say. Mm-hmm. That's a, an aspect of Jim that I aspire to, to be more like, where I can truly uh, be very careful because words have power and... Uh, I think you, you can genuinely hurt people if you're flippant with them. And he doesn't seem to be flippant with his no, words, no. really, at all. Even in his jokes, even his jokes, you can tell he's contemplated them. He never seems to go too far, either. Although, I guess with, with Dwight, a couple of times he goes a little too far. But.
0: Well, okay, here's what I'd say. The way that Jim is flippant with his jokes and his sarcasm is justified because no well adjusted thoughtful person could be fooled by them like he's not he's not being devious in his underhandedness like he when he's sarcastic to michael or dwight and they don't notice that actually is way more about how oblivious dwight and michael are to the world and how self involved they are not how tricky and deceiving jim is being
1: right he's not <laughs> he's not trying to hurt them with his deceptions either and he's not even trying to, I wouldn't say, belittle them. It's like it's, it's smart enough that it go, goes under their egotism, but it's not it's not mean or aggressive.
0: Yeah, and I mean I mean, from a show perspective, the the comments Jim makes about Michael and Dwight's behavior, especially in and Andy's, too, are a signal to the audience watching the office of the writers saying, yes. We know you shouldn't be like Michael or Dwight or Andy. That's the point, point. and so you can suspend disbelief again. Yeah, exactly. It's a very subtle break of the fourth wall. I mean, I, I can't even say you can't break the fourth wall in this show because there is no there is no fourth wall. Fourth wall. Yeah. <laughs> the camera is meant to be a character in the show. That's why I don't think he's harmful in his insincerities, and they're charming because he's not trying to hurt anyone, and you no fair-minded person could think that he would be. Right, yeah, <laughs> I like that.
1: And that is a, that's a nuanced way to live. Like, you can't yeah. <laughs> just do that, right? I mean, no. a lot of people are more ham-fisted about their jokes. Uh, I know I probably am more ham-fisted about my jokes, or but he's very nuanced about it. And, like, it does take, I would imagine, a lot of mental energy to be able to make those kind of jokes that aren't hurtful. <laughs> do you think the more literal-minded Dwight would be
0: hand fisted about his jokes yeah yes I do yeah (laughs) yeah and I think that that's kind of like all of the subtle things about Jim just pile up into our adoration of him it's almost impossible to think of someone worthy of Pam and yet Jim is that's one of the beautiful things about their love is how hard they work to be worthy of each other like yes, and I and I love yes. that aspect of the I've, relationship. I've heard it.
1: I've heard it said that as a man, and I'm assuming it's the same as a woman. If you want to, you know, stay in love and stay in a, in a good state with your partner, always be trying to win them. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, act always like you did at the beginning. You'll be fine forever. Yeah, every day is like the first date again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, that's, I, and I and I, I like that. I think I think there's a lot of wisdom
0: there. Oh, I think that's why. We, I mean, we talked about that a lot in the Blue Valentine episode. Like that was the problem with that relationship. Right? Yeah, they stopped. They they stopped trying. Uh, And then, obviously, Jim and Pam's relationship is an amazing and wonderful component of this. And I took a couple notes on some of the little things I noticed that I think are the glue of why it works so well. So, in the Hot Girl episode. Pam calls Dwight over. They send Dwight in to talk to the hot girl so Jim can bond with Pam. And they're just making small joys for each other here. Slow day, boring. Let's have a little fun together. And that little, let's have a little fun together is the X's and O's of Jim's relationship with Pam and vice versa, right? right? The, the small little funds that they have. And I, I think of some of the best moments I've ever had with girlfriends. And it is those little making funny comments with each other while you're people watching
1: or (laughs) laughing about something like just that just as hilarious to both yeah
0: or like you're watching a tv show and somebody does something stupid and so you make a comment about how they're doing the stupid thing and then the person with you makes what the next comment would be if you were living that situation and then you and so you kind of role play the stupidity of the characters and you don't have to ask them to do it it's kind of unprompted like they know It's almost like they know what the right thing to do next is without being asked. And that little aspect of Jim and Pam is so, so wonderful. I love how they always, like, they just prank Dwight so hard together at the Office Olympics. They're throwing stuff into Dwight's mug. And then this is from their wedding episodes. They take mental pictures of everything from the wedding. Like, just that little heuristic is so beautiful. Jim cuts his tie to make Pam feel better when her veil is torn. And it's, like, truly not about things or stuff, just what matters. Uh, Oh, I
1: love that about their relationship. Like, it's not about the trappings. Yeah, It's about the relationship.
0: To contrast it to a relationship that isn't working in a great work of fiction. American Beauty is one of my favorite movies ever. And what I would say maybe is the best scene in the movie. It's the only scene where Annette Benning and Kevin Spacey's characters are potentially going to be intimate with each other they're married but they seem to be hating each other and they're like getting intimate on the couch and kevin spacey lester burnham has a open beer bottle and he's like leaning over kissing her and she's like while he's kissing her she says careful you're going to spill on the couch and he says and he just he like kind of gets off of her and looks at her he's like spill on the couch it's just a couch Because they're having this, like, for the first time in the movie, an actual kind, intimate moment with each other. And, like, I can't remember what she says exactly, but it's something along the lines of, This is just not just a couch. It's like a $4,000, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then. And he totally kills all the romance. Yeah, kills all the romance. And and then Lester says, It's just a couch. It's just stuff. All of this stuff is just stuff. And it's become more important to you than living. Well, honey, that's just crazy. (laughs) Yeah. And. You would think at a wedding you would want to look a certain way if you're the bride if you're the groom you don't necessarily want a necktie cut in half. No. But it's just stuff. And it's not more important to him than showing Pam that he loves her. And and, and when he
1: does that she and the beauty of it is she isn't like, "What are you doing?" She's yeah. like, "She oh, gets I it. I get exactly what you're doing, Jim, and you've taken me out of that mental state. Yeah. And that's why I love you."
0: It's so beautiful. And then they go and have their wedding. They can put up with the crazies because they have each other. (laughs) So they can put up with the dancing at their wedding and they're fun loving deep down. That's another thing. Like the both of them together actually do love to have fun. And I think that that's such a important characteristic of everything in this show. Yeah. And so that's like, yeah, we've talked so much about Jim and Pam's love. And I, I just wanted to point those out because I think... That is one of the reasons people love this show. Maybe maybe if one, people had to pick one reason why they love The Office, it would be Jim and Pam's relationship. Oh, I,
1: I think that's the biggest
0: reason yeah. that a lot of people... So tell me what you think about Andy Bernard, the nard dog. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's funny because I think at first Andy and Dwight are really good friends, right? They see a commonality in each other's
1: way of being. Yeah, and and I think there is a commonality in their way of being. It's two sides of a very similar coin. Both of them really care about power (laughs) in completely different ways. Sure. But the big difference between Dwight and Andy is that Andy's terribly insecure (laughs) and Dwight isn't. Yes. Right? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. As much as Dwight is weird and Dwight is... An ass kisser and all that stuff. At the heart of it, there's actually a similarity between Dwight and um, Jim in that they're internally quite secure secure. with who they are. (laughs) Like Dwight isn't really worried what other people think about him. And Jim's not I don't think Dwight can even comprehend what it would be to have other people think about him. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. But Andy is terrified of it and thinks about it all the time. And the moment where he becomes a manager... And then all he wants is everyone to like him. Even more than than, uh, than Michael ever did, right? And also, I think one of the, the great critiques, and it's the thing I like about The Office it's, is actually the opposite of what I like about South Park. South Park's in your face, smash it until you understand it, like bang it into your head. And um, The Office is so subtle. But what are they critiquing when they're critiquing Andy? They're critiquing someone who gets their value from outward uh, accomplishments. So let's take the fact that he went to Cornell. He talks about the fact that he went to Cornell all the time, right? Like best one of the best schools. He needs everyone to know that he went exactly. there. Exactly like for him,
0: it's a status thing. He can't. He needs external validation. Like he's the opposite of of Jim um, and Dwight. I guess Dwight doesn't need external – but Dwight would need
1: validation from his superior. True. So I guess he does need external validation. That's a good point. And he needs validation – From everybody. From
0: everyone who doesn't even know him. (laughs) Like, it's not just the people – like, it needs to be everybody. It needs – like, he's just – I mean, I'm glad you brought up his lack of – his insecurity because the very first note I made about him is a line he has from the Crime episode where he says, you're always safe with me. I'm a very good screamer. <laughs> Not really one for self-respect, is he?
1: <laughs> no. that's it. The interesting part is that he's so consumed by his image and how other people view him, but he's also so self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. And I really find it to be a fascinating character because I think he's actually one of the least likable characters in the show, uh, especially how he treats Aaron. And whereas Roy seems to have learned from his mistakes with Pam, I don't think Andy ever really learns from his relational mistakes. Uh,
0: I, yeah, I don't know if he does long term. He has some parts where he seems to. The happy hour episode, he sh- he's trying so hard to not make any drama with Aaron and it's just too much work. I'm like I'm. This is the note I'm making. I'm like, man, that's too much fucking work. Like, you just got to enjoy another person. So, like, Aaron and Andy's relationship in this moment is a perfect contrast to Jim and Pam's, who are just so comfortable in their skin, in their own skin, and as a couple. And Andy and Aaron go out of their way to make it look like they're not dating. <laughs> like well, they, <laughs> and that's he's, Andy wants that.
1: Remember, he's like he yeah. doesn't want people to think but those then, things.
0: But he, at the end of the episode, he admits that he's dating Aaron. Like he announces it to everyone. And then admits he loves drama. But there is a sense of relief on his face when he's able to admit to his frailty and vulnerability, which is the fact that he's dating Aaron. And yet, it doesn't seem to be like a long term thing for him, no. But it does, like, it does demonstrate in that episode, especially the importance of facing your vulnerabilities and figuring out what you care about more.
1: And this actually brings up something that I've uh, wanted to mention and we haven't yet is dating in the office or dating in the work environment because as you pointed out much earlier I, I think it was actually in a Michael episode people don't suffer consequences in this show <laughs> in this show whereas I think in reality I personally think it's a very bad idea to date at work one of the first pieces of advice I ever got when I started working on Parliament Hill was that do not Stick your pen in the company ink. Like, <laughs> do not. Do I don't it. get it, Dave. What does that mean? <laughs> I would, I would you prefer you to a, be you as explicit mind. as possible. You have a sharp mind. <laughs> you oh, can, like you can pick up what I'm laying down. Yeah, the rationale for it is you're working with these people. You have to get things done with these people. And if suddenly you're you're bringing in the intense emotions of romance and intimacy and and heartbreak, it's gonna cause serious. Work problems and and has for me in the past, and I'm I know many people who it's done the same. Yeah, for
0: I, I mean, okay, so the catch twenty two of that particular meet way is that the people you see the most are the people you work with. <laughs> yeah, and as we've talked about, as you get to know someone better, unless they're totally unlikable or an asshole, attraction grows as you have more context of another person, and you get more context of another person by seeing them more and hearing more of their mind and more of their p- opinions and more of what they're doing outside of work and et cetera, on and on and on. And the people you get the most context of are the people you see the most who are the people you work with. So there's a There's, well, there's, a, I agree. there's, there's a, a negative a- feedback loop <laughs> going on here where the people you're not supposed to date are the people you work with, and yet the people you end up getting to know the best and therefore passively can be most attracted to because there's the people you know the best or the people you work with. No, I, I agree <laughs> that there's a, a so what, problem what's here. So what's a poor person to do? <laughs>
1: well, and that's the funny thing because, like you said, they don't really seem to suffer the consequences and yet Pam and Jim stay together, Dwight and Angela end up together, but with Andy, not so much. And I guess the question is, what is it about Andy that the, the, the showrunners are trying to show us I imagine, I I would think, when you're telling a story like this, you're trying to point things out, your warning signs, qualities you should want. Like, I think they're obviously holding Pam and Jim up as like an ideal, what a relationship should look like as real as possible. So what are they trying to show us with Andy? My conclusion, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is that what they're trying to show us with Andy is that if you can't overcome your own insecurities and truly deal with past traumas because he's got his whole family stuff that he has to deal with too and he ends up living on the boat for a while (laughs) yeah i mean just his family is a big insecurity for him too
0: in one way two ways particularly one where he's always trying to impress his dad at that one garden party in cant and then the episode where he finds out that his ancestors owned slaves almost destroys him yeah. mentally and, oh. and he like he in that episode i think he, he like needs daryl to forgive him oh yeah <laughs> like, specifically and yet daryl's like andy you didn't own any slaves and lots of rich white people like it would be more surprising if rich white people like you whose ancestors didn't own slaves <laughs> <laughs> and, but like so he's he doesn't have perspective of those kind of things so yeah sorry
1: no, no. I, I, I guess what I'm, all I'm saying is uh, that I think what it really is is that he never deals with any of it. In fact, he's very emotional. He, he's the opposite of Jim if we describe Jim as a rock. And even if we describe, like, Dwight's pretty steady as she goes, gets things done, secure in his personal life. was work life, he has some problems, and we see those worked through. Mm-hmm. And we see Jim's problems worked through where he finally you know, begins to pursue his potential. And we see with Andy, it's a really a, a tragic tale. He he ends up living on that boat for a year. Yeah,
0: and that specific insecurity you're referencing make him super gullible, and able to be just taken on any whim. I mean, he just wants to go on that youth church mission trip. Yeah, him and Michael the they just and... get on the bus. They're like, they're on the bus they're like, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> but he like be- because he's not grounded as you're talking about, it it reminds me a little bit of how you talked about when we did South Park, Randy Marsh, the unmoored, non-self-reflective person is so easily caught in the wind of whatever's going on around him. So he doesn't have a, a core kind of thing. And I can't remember exactly how his story ends at the end of the office, but I remember to give him a little credence. Okay, here. Andy's admirable moments are when he's able to overcome that with a little bit of courage. And so I think in the first episode of season eight, the list where Robert California shows up and they have the list of the winners and losers on either side. And Andy goes in to talk to him and he sticks up for his friends in the office here. He's like, well, people in the office aren't feeling pretty good about this. And then of course, Robert removes Andy's name from the winner side to the loser side. (laughs) That was actually probably the moment in the show. I was most impressed with Andy where he, without being asked, goes in to confront his new boss about this thing that's making all of his friends feel insecure. So maybe, well, maybe because he knows what it's like to feel insecure, he's able to empathize with them really well. Like that point doesn't overrule what you're saying. I'm saying that maybe the antidote to insecurity is courage. Ah. You're right? Or the antidote or the first good step towards finding some sort of grounding and center and core for yourself is to stick up for your friends when they're being
1: hurt in some way you know because he can know what that feels like at the very least it goes back to what we were saying earlier about like a person who's like one of uh, Michael's greatest qualities right is that he knows what it, what something feels like and theref- and he knows what it's like to not be loved and so he's super sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. You can actually give wisdom on it.
0: Yeah. And so again maybe he grows, maybe I I don't know like I feel like in the last two so in the two seasons where Michael's gone and Andy takes on a slightly more prominent role because Ed Helms was a little famous <laughs> so they needed <laughs> someone more uh, like Andy Andy had a good growth into the show I think from a humor perspective that made him the logical choice to have more lines and more scenes in the last two seasons I don't know like I feel like he grows up a little bit which maybe too little too d- late I guess he but... just doesn't
1: seem to have the same kind of uh, catharsis at no. the end that any of the other characters do
0: yeah I mean probably the best way again to think of Andy is a cautionary yeah, tale. like, yeah. what is uh in the Balkanism? He's a rang rang. Well, no, because rang rangs are th- nihilism. If we're going to take about someone's behavior putting you off something, Andy's behavior certainly Should turns you me off, off, off. That way of life, yeah, insecurity and lack of self respect. <laughs> but I don't know. I still have a soft spot in my heart for him, even though he's kind of crazy.
1: I do too. That's why I think it's kind of. I wonder why the showrunners didn't kind of give him the catharsis they gave everybody else. I mean, he goes to work at Cornell. Maybe they do, and I don't remember exactly. And maybe then maybe we'll, that's sad. That maybe we just we'll don't get even remember. Well, okay.
0: So, to be fair to the internet, I find season eight and nine of The Office to be the least officey of the office. I mean, they're good, but without Michael, it's not the same. And I don't think either of us watched a single episode from season nine to That's true. Podcast. But podcast. Well, I have watched. I, have I think seen, I've probably
1: seen season eight and nine more than any other seasons. Oh, really? Yeah. I yeah.
0: So Oscar, when they're talking about Jim and Pam maybe being in a relationship, maybe not. Kevin's convinced. And Oscar says, they've been in remarkably good moods. It could be other things.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and it's like, even though... No one believes that, and probably not even Oscar. I do appreciate the fact that he is more or less able to be objective, and the most cle- he's often the most clear headed person in the office. He's not very forthright in his <laughs> thoughts. I mean, he can be, I guess, but he gets drowned out by louder voices. But I still appreciate that. I appreciate the perspective that is able to take on other interpretations of an event before you know for sure right even yeah. if it's 98 percent in one direction to conclusions yeah most specifically not jumping to a conclusion when all of your psyche wants to which i think certainly kevin demonstrates this and the general feel of everybody else is like oh man they really want jim and pam to be dating yeah. And Oscar's like, could be other things. He just sticks to the facts. Yeah, yeah. And I like that about Oscar. And when... <laughs> this is so funny. When Michael gives him that shitty scarecrow in the episode where Michael's leaving. And, oh, yes. And Oscar feigns gratitude <laughs> to be nice, right? <laughs> so Oscar's good at being nice to spare someone's feelings. And then, of course, Michael just laughs at him. But I like that about Oscar I think maybe if there is a villain of the show. Is it Toby? <laughs> no, I don't think it's Toby. I think Toby's too pathetic to be a villain. I think the villain, if there is one, is Ryan, actually. Oh, I think Ryan day. is the, is the because if you know The Office, you know enough of Ryan's cynicism and exploitation and wishy-washiness. So maybe villain isn't exactly the right word, but he's unimpressive enough and He's self-involved in a way that is not admirable, but he's smart enough to actually do damage to other people, yeah. which makes him more of a threat than anyone
1: else who's selfish in the office, I think. Because he's well, smarter he does, than anyone he does else up, But then he gets his comeuppance by mm-hmm. working at a bowling alley. But
0: I, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they give us what we want. But I think that the, the thing that I noticed in the episodes I watched recently that spoke to me the most about why I don't like him He's really the only character I don't like. Like, as a person, I don't think I'd like him. Is in the Office Olympics episode, Pam makes all of these medals out of the yogurt cup lids, right? The bronze and the gold and the silver. And he doesn't see the kindness in Pam's effort to make all these medals. Like, he's just like, these look stupid. What are you, why? And he's too practical and not enough of a generous spirit to take He's in- also horrible to Kelly. Yeah, I mean, he's terrible. I mean, she's I'm not, not the easiest in the world either, I think. No, but I mean, he leads her on and he <laughs> yeah, won't really. No. But I, I don't know. Like I think that there, uh, that would be how I would phrase it, is that he doesn't have a generous spirit. And I think that that's what adds to his villainy for me. Stanley, just what's wrong with you? I don't know. There's something
1: funny about Stanley. I think only funny. I think he he he. I, I like his like obsession with vacations, but I mean, like honestly, I think Stanley's one of the saddest characters. I, I find him even sadder than than Kevin. Like, I'd say Stanley maybe is
0: a perfect. He's a he's like a meme. He's, he's a like man, a walking yeah, meme. Yeah, he's
1: a man who's just given up, and it's just like, oh, it's sad.
0: But he doesn't seem to care.
1: Like, well, but why it's I'm
0: saying he's given up? Yes, why I don't think he's a tragic character is because he's not trying to be better. And not getting it. Right. (laughs) Like, he's
1: he's perfectly content with his lot.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Here's a line from Phyllis that I love. Because I think Phyllis is, like, a beautiful optimist. I think that that, like, Phyllis maybe has one of the greatest souls. Even if she doesn't have always the greatest brain, she has one of the greatest souls in the show. We all deserve someone who wants to be with us. Yeah. And it reminded me of um, it's not exactly in line with it, but there's a great song by the band filter called take a picture. And one of the lines in the song is, could everyone agree that no one should be left alone? And what I'm extrapolating from that line of the song is not that everyone deserves everyone, but that there, there's hopefully someone out there for everyone. And that person would want like that that everyone would have someone else out there that would want to be with them and that's what you actually deserve is someone who wants to be with you and like there's just a
1: beautiful wisdom in that line from phyllis the okay so going into that though the hard part about that is i agree it's beautiful to have that but like the worst situation is when someone wants to be with you and you don't want to be with them yeah right and it's finding it's not just finding someone who wants to be with you that's important but it's also finding someone you want to be with. Yeah. Well, I think from
0: Phyllis's term here, it's about being able to take both
1: perspectives. Right. Yes. Uh,
0: it, this right. her line, we all deserve someone who wants to be with us. The mature way to actually do that line is have it be both ways, able to be both ways, like your own perspective and someone else's perspective. Right. right. Yes. To okay. take on that kind of cognitive empathy.
1: Let's see what you're saying. And I, I don't you know. I just feel like Phyllis is full of those kind of little. And she does seem very up. Op- optimistic and i kind of like her uh innocent joys yeah she has a lot of of innocent joys
0: you know what it feels like feels like phyllis could be a holiday card writer that's one step below the line of cheesy
1: yeah so it's not
0: quite cheesy because of how sincere it is exactly exactly (laughs) she could be
1: she could write hallmark cards
0: (laughs) Meredith, she's in the show. She's all right, I guess. Creed's
1: in the show. He's all right.
0: Oh, Angela. Okay. Decent people everywhere should be offended on Pam's pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) I do love her her stick-up-her-buttness throughout the show. It's pretty funny.
1: That's the best part of Angela is she reminds me of all of those holier-than-thou people that you kind of just want to hate, like the Pharisees (laughs) and all these things. And yet, the show makes us love her. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is one of the greatest feats of The Office, is when it starts off, she's the stick-up-her-butt, you know, puritanical, images-everything, and the world just deals her a bad hand after bad hand and beats the crap out of her. And instead of becoming a bitter, you know, brittle, angry woman, she actually softens. And like Mm -hmm. learns to love. Yeah, she softens her heart. Yeah, and I love that. Like Mm -hmm. I think that her. That's why I I think that she and Dwight have the best character arcs Mm -hmm. in the whole show. Because I mean, when you start watching that show, you you can't even imagine caring about Angela, (laughs) right? Yeah, like the way she treats Pam. But at the end, you're like, oh, I'm so happy that she gets love with. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. funny about angela
0: is that i guess i actually like like her hypocrisies make me like her more maybe this is just the way my brain is but her holier than thou attitude juxtaposed to the way she's so easily like she seems to give in to her desires so she can't even wait go home to have sex with Dwight like they have to do it in the warehouse kind of thing yeah. I guess if I talked to her it'd be annoying but as a viewer of the show her hypocrisies is actually kind of hum- humanize her in a way that makes me feel for her more in her kind of stuck up moments because she is so like she her, her real constant throughout most of the show is her care for Dwight And it never feels like that's ever forced or fake. Like, she really cares about Dwight. And so when it's not going well with Dwight at different times of the show, you can see the pain in her eyes about that. And I think you'd have to be, you know, a monster to not care about that. And it's funny because she would be the first person to point out what's going wrong if it if if her and dwight's relationship happened to anybody else she'd be the first unprompted unsolicited opinion Yeah, (laughs) you know and yet because she's also afflicted with these things i don't know it's in some weird way they just made it so that that actually makes me like her more yeah but maybe that's because retroactively she does soften her heart and i like that too so Gabe is a weirdo. I own over 200 horror movies. <laughs> he says yeah, this to scare he Andy. I mean, he's just a weirdo. I don't yeah. know. Robert California. Uh, he's just messing with everyone all the time just to see what they will do. He's like almost like a god <laughs> doing a social experiment. But here's, here's an interesting thing that he does with the list. Winners prove me right. Losers prove me wrong. A weirdly useful way to think if he is above the fray. Because he's issuing a challenge to everyone – To change his perspective,
1: right? And but the thing is, he does seem to be willing to change his perspective. Mm -hmm.
0: Now, why that attitude is interesting to me is that the premise of that attitude or that saying means that he himself is not involved in anybody's opinion. Like he's above it. Now, obviously, he's above it in the sense that he's a CEO, so he doesn't have to. Like, there's no. But I think that to me, why Robert California is not actually. As good of a leader as Michael, is that Michael? Like Michael gets in the trenches with his team, and so if Michael were to issue a challenge like that, for all of Michael's faults, he would probably be able to say something like, "And I want to prove myself to you too." Right. I, I think Michael would at least get to that point. Yeah. And and so no, and I but I but he might I think he would feel it. Yeah. I have a a natural repulsion to. People who really expect something out of others when their skin isn't in the game at all. Like, I feel like Robert needs to put his skin in that game a little bit to make it more meaningful. Whereas he's actually just above the fray. And Like, I don't know, maybe there's a point where that doesn't need to happen. Like, like we said, Obi-Wan Kenobi is above the fray of the battles between Luke and Han. But then I'm like, well, I don't know. He could have helped out more. (laughs) Like he could have been more forthcoming and like, Told, told Luke more more things, yeah. more things made he, himself yeah, more he, involved in the story. And lying to Luke, I don't know. Like I, I haven't thought about it this enough, so I can't give like a, a really cogent opinion on it. Other than I, I, my intuition pulls me towards respecting the person more who p- puts skin in the game themselves and doesn't just challenge it and is standing outside the realm with everybody else. Yep. Yeah. Kevin is a dick. I don't know. He's funny. I feel bad for him, but he doesn't learn so. <laughs> Toby is we made talked, a terrible
1: gambling addiction, too. Uh, yeah, and he's
0: gambling. not, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he becomes a total dick to everyone once he's a winner in Robert California yeah. book. One day winner, making fun of everybody else. I feel bad for him sometimes, but I think he's mostly humor. <laughs> and Creed, obviously, and Toby, we talked about. So, just the last, my favorite non main character of the show, and I think maybe the greatest ever character put into a show later in its run is Aaron. yeah i Dang. fucking love Aaron. <laughs> she is so sincere she's too i don't want to say dumb she's not quite she doesn't quite have the ability to think through everything enough to make her the things she says she's like accidentally honest like, you don't really think she's, tr- like, she says something that's self-deprecating. She doesn't seem like she's knowingly doing it. She doesn't that. even know that she's, it's deprecating herself. She, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Like, she doesn't realize that it's actually a self-roast. And, her, and she's kind of, it's almost as if she's kind of, like, a little bit, like, separated from everything else. As if she kind mm-hmm. of lives on a different plane and, and the, just, there's not a, Full congruence between yeah. her and normal people. No, reality. no, no. There's
0: something <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> there's just a, a little bit off. Though, like, like there might not... be
0: something definitively quirky about her.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> but so here's a great line of that though. It's in the fr- it's in the the episode, the list, and it's the one where everyone's planking, right? And yes. you see her, she's planking while Oscar's walking in, and then she does a, a to the camera, it's like, "It's called planking. You either got it or you don't, and I don't." <laughs> <laughs> But she says, she says the part where she is like the first part of that seems like bragging, right? The second part seems like self-deprecation, but she says the entire thing with the same tone of voice and excitement as if she doesn't understand the connotation of either of them. <laughs> yeah. And and, yeah. and like that kind of innocent or, yeah, I would say not naive, that innocent sincerity is something I find so charming about her in the in her style of humor. Uh, I wish I knew who my birth mother was so she could tell me to choose. (laughs) And so, I don't know. I just find her so, so unbelievably sweet and kind. She's a very enjoyable part of the show. Because I don't, I think it was season five she first came in. So it's like half the show she's not there. And yet, once she's there, you can't imagine that show without her, I would say.
1: Yeah, I'd agree.
0: I think if she had been from the beginning, she would have been... One of the main characters by the end, too. Like, yeah. I think there'd been, there's so much to do but with her. But so would
1: Andy, probably.
0: Well, yeah, and Andy becomes, because Andy, yeah. I think Andy joins in season three yeah. in Stanford with Jim and Karen when they're over there. That's right. That's right. Anyway, bring up things show related that you want to talk about.
1: I think it's interesting that this show is so comforting to people. I don't even think, even in the four hours that we've, four and a half hours that we've talked about it now, Five. <laughs> five. Five hours that we've talked about it. Have we That we've really fully articulated why it's so comforting. But here's what I'd say I why I think it's so comforting. Because it's real enough to make you feel at home. It's wholesome enough that you never really feel like you're uncomfortable. Except that one scene that always makes me uncomfortable where... Kevin spills the entire thing of chili all over the floor. I I don't know why, but it just bothers me immensely. <laughs> and most importantly, it reminds us of, I think, one of the, mo- the biggest existential truths out there, which is that life is lived day to day. And the places we work, the people around us, that's actually our life. It's not the aspirations we have. It's the present moment now with these people. And I think that's celebrated in a phenomenal way by The Office. In fact, And if Calvin and Hobbes is a love letter to imagination, I think The Office is a tribute to the beauty of the moment.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe some of the beautiful things of the otherwise mundane because the office i mean yeah (laughs) imagine pitching a show yeah i don't know how. where you say okay i mean obviously it's a kind of an american reboot of the british one which is i don't think they sell paper in the british one i can't remember what they sell but imagine pitching the show okay we're gonna have all these people who are not famous i mean the characters the actors are a little famous but like All these people are just kind of boring everyday workers and they sell paper. And it's going to be one of the biggest shows in the history of TV. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How? (laughs) Like, if you think about it from that premise, how? Well, because of those ways you talked about it, how it's able to just capture something so simple and so joyful. And so just a couple of things that I noticed again watching. The kind of normal feel of the show, I think, is mirrored so well in the intro. Just a kind of nice little piano and some shots of normal Scranton, normal small-town America kind of thing. And so that intro gets you the feel of the show so well. The Office doesn't have quite the same amount of great running jokes as Arrested Development does. But the best one, I think, is the assistant to the regional manager and how they do that. And eventually, even Dwight starts saying it. (laughs) (laughs) How the characters acknowledge the camera, I actually... I can't overemphasize again how I think that is one of the reasons why this show has passively seeped in so differently than other shows is how the camera itself is a character in the show. Yeah, Like, that's amazing. And they don't
1: really do that with many other... I mean, there are other shows that try to do it, but nothing comes Mm -hmm. close to the magic that they create with The Office.
0: I think that actually The Office benefited from having a bit of a standoffish feel early on for the ensemble characters because in the first two seasons the not main characters are a lot more bland. Like, they really grow into their roles. And I think probably that's because the first two seasons almost completely, well, at least first the first season does, and the second one probably a lot too, mirrors the British one. So yeah. they didn't have the same well, ensemble. Well, and
1: actually going back to what you were saying earlier about getting to know people and only having a certain bandwidth, and those are the people we decide to love. But an interesting thing is the more time, you, like you said, you and then going again to what you said about meeting people at work. Well, when you spend a lot of time with people, they do kind of come out of the background. They do become less standoffish. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a testament to how great the showrunners are that they're able to – They they take time and – they don't throw the, the there's shows where they throw a new character in your face and like give them their backstory. And it just seems so heavy handed. But the the office introduces you just to the characters organically in mm-hmm. little moments that yeah. become longer moments. Those and,
0: candid camera moments yeah. that
1: we mentioned earlier, I think are
0: so genius too. To catch people doing something that they don't know that they're doing or that they know that they're doing but they don't know anyone's watching. Yeah. And it's not a bad thing they're doing, it's just the quiet little things that no one ever knows that we do exactly (laughs) and humanizes okay so for me personally one of my deep joys about this show is how much good music is in it and it's not like a soundtrack like it's it's a song that people in the show are listening to so the ones that i noticed in in the episodes i watched is michael's listening to i feel like making love Bow, 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 bow. that song and then also the murder episode where maybe it's collapse or murder mystery maybe uh dunder mifflin is collapsing he's listening to rockabye <laughs> rockabye it's so sad and then when he's helping holly move to nashua the they're trying to sing the life is a highway song by tom cochran like those are just three examples of and it doesn't, it's not even like all the time, but when there's a song in the show, it's just such a great place. To me, the music choice of The Office is a huge wink and a huge nod to people who are invested in culture. Yeah. And the and the culture of great songs. Cause to me, I love music. Maybe even more than movies. Right. <laughs> and so when I'm just sitting there and all of a sudden I hear that door, Jim opens that door and I hear Rockabye playing, I'm like, oh, fuck yes. <laughs> that turns my crank. No one has to live with the consequences, I think. And so I just wanted to, I know in the Michael episode, I gave a shout out to my friend Danica and I asked her for some of her thoughts on The Office and I wanted to share something she said that I love. So why? one of the things she said that she thinks people love this show is that, the characters that they're om- almost all unfiltered parts of ourselves. Because I think who hasn't felt like a Stanley at an unnecessary meeting or had a Kevin thought run through my mind. <laughs> yeah. Or, or Toby even who feeling insecure or Andy. And I like that. That's true. Like there are Stanley sitting in those meetings. I've been like, oh, yeah, I guess I have been in meetings like that before. And the unfiltered things Kevin says, like, oh, well, Maybe I'm I wouldn't put it as bluntly as that, but yeah, that's what I think too. And I and I that was a great insight. That is I a thought. great. Insight. So I want to say thank you, Danica, for that. Thanks, Danica. That is a good thought. And uh, thank you for introducing Luke to the office. Yes, it has greatly benefited my life. And so, I mean, uh, to be to be totally honest, it would be too hard for me to just kind of abstractly wrap up my thoughts about this show because I think there's too much. Like this show has meant too much to me emotionally and to end to many people too, to, to to just wrap up and like okay here's what i think about this show so i actually have to make it tangible by talking about a specific scene that i think gives it to me and it's so beautiful it's the wedding it's jim and pam's wedding scene and it's a montage and it's it's a split telling of all of the people from the office and friends doing the dance down that hallway where like have you seen that youtube video kind of thing and that, all of those shots are spliced with Jim and Pam's actual wedding ceremony on the Maid of the Mist. That's where they actually get married, right? Like, I think they yeah. have someone ordained, Before, uh, who's ordained, yeah. perform the ceremony. He puts the ring on her, vice versa. And all of this, it's like, there's music overplaying all that, like the song that they're dancing to. And so I think this segment captures the perfection of this show because it, is so, emo- in such an emotionally resonant way, demonstrating maybe the two most important things in life, which are humor and love. And that is what this show does for me. Humor and love. Humor, I mean, that's what that show is about. Humor and love. And that's The Office, in a nutshell, I would say.
1: Couldn't have concluded better myself.
0: <laughs> so... Thank you for listening to these very big Office episodes. But you know what? If you love The Office as much as I do, it's easy to talk about. So these <laughs> We could probably have talked about it longer. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to say thank you so much for listening. And my name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. And this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Have a good one. Thanks, guys.